Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo goes back to the world of illogical logic, courtesy of the finest teachers in the subject, George Burns and Gracie Allen. But be advised, their presence here may be all that you find palatable and intriguing amid a backdrop of melodrama that is ill-sewn into the routine of these sterling artists. Yes, folks, tonight we will kick back to the year 1935 and a presentation of Elliot Nugent's grab bag of a movie, Love and Bloom. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. you think you're going? Oh, now, you see, I told you it was silly to stop the car. All the officer wants to know is where we're going. Listen, officer. You certainly led me a merry chase. Oh, thank you, officer, and a merry chase to you. Uh, officer, going 60 miles an hour. Oh, why you? So will we. Uh, l- uh, listen, officer. What's your name? Um, uh, Gracie Downey. What's yours? Patrick Mac... Wait a minute. Wait a minute, isn't that a pretty name? Uh, how is Mrs. Nick? Wait a minute, and all a little Nick, wait a second. Say, are you trying to kid me? Oh, George, the officer wants you to kid him. You're a good kid. Go on, say something to him. Quiet. Th- what do you mean, quiet? One more quiet out of you, and I'll punch you right in the nose. Well, now that's a good comeback. Now, Georgie Porgy, it's your turn. Say something to the officer. I think I'll give you a ticket. Oh, that's awfully nice of you. Oh, will you make it out for two so I can take Georgie with me? It's been swell in a way, staying here nights. You've been awfully decent, Larry. Most fellas wouldn't have been. That's because I love you, Vi. Oh, don't start swelling it now, Galahad. Listen, Vi. I've been trying for a long time to get up nerve enough to tell you. Oh, what brought this on? Well, it's been on my mind all those evenings when we'd come back here after dinner, like two married people, <laughs> and you'd be taking a tuck in this coat or 
We'd be sitting in the dark practicing my songs. Or late at night, when I'd be over there copying my music, and you'd be asleep. I'd look at you, Vi, and I'd know that you were the only girl in the world for me. Marry me, Vi. Don't you love me? Yes, you do. I know you do. I can see it in your eyes. I feel it in your hands. And we love each other, and we're going to get married right away. Oh, you're crazy, Larry. No, I'm not, and it'll be cheaper than living apart, and, and someday when, when I'm established as a composer... We'll... Oh, easy, Romeo, easy. You're a nice kid, and I like you a lot. But we're going to keep things the way they are. Strictly business, see? We're partners like Sis Roebuck or Piggly Wiggly. Piggly Wiggly. How can you... And I'm not the kind of girl you should be talking love to. You're the only girl I'll ever want. Oh, I'm not, Larry. I've been places, and you're going places. Well, not without you. You're going places where I could never fit. I'd only hold you back or drag you down. Oh, you don't know. That's well, enough of that. We're going to get married right away. Oh, you are crazy. All right, I am. About you. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1935, Burns and Allen appeared on screen once more, this time as supporting players to an otherwise typical love story of star-crossed lovers brought together by the hustle and bustle of city life. It's a film that isn't uncommon from this era, but it is one that shows a prime example of throwing things into a mixing bowl and seeing what comes out of the Hollywood oven on the other end. Just how do we view Love and Bloom, and what does it teach us about filmmaking trends today? To answer that, we have enlisted the help of a podcaster and com comedy enthusiast who has already given her valuable two cents towards the happenings at Mr. Modicek's store and to the denizens of a dilapidated revolutionary house. There, today, though, she will be asked to help us make some sense out of a film that carries one of the greatest stars of nonsense. Um, and it's a film that does not even have the song that bears its namesake. Please welcome back to the show, Hope Sears. Hi. That is a very true intro. Yeah, uh, yeah. Before we get in, before we get into it, uh, speaking of revolutionary era houses, <laughs> um, you 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 told me something because I want the listeners to not to know this so that they can track you down. But I think they might find it interesting. You are a comedy enthusiast and a uh, a golden age Hollywood enthusiast, and you took it a step further than most people and bought a house from the 1930s not too long ago. <laughs> I did, but that is almost out of necessity because, man, oh, man, are prices just everywhere increasing. Mm -hmm. But I um, I told you that I wanted to make sure that I don't have a um, I don't have a George Washington slept here house. Although let's let's be honest, like it's more like a Mr. Blanding's builds his dream home. In the sense that, like, I just keep, I feel like I'm going to just keep adding and adding to this home. So my um, <laughs> long, long story short, um, um, well, there's a lot to this story. So maybe not a, a sh super short, but my most re recent home renovation was, um, so there's pipes in random places and places that there really shouldn't be, like right near the stair handles and so my dad decided he was going to move those and so now my pipes are um he fixed them but they're still leaking <laughs> and also somehow my water softener broke 
Oh, ew. So, um, yeah, this is a month in. I am, yeah. Yeah, you. I can. I can hear the exhaustion in your voice. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. (laughs) I have a deal for you. Yes. Uh, I'll help you forget your house troubles if you help me try to suss out this movie that we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Deal? Oh God, I I can try. Just like the movie itself, I'm not expecting a plus effort. <laughs> right when you when you were when you sent me like options for um for Burns and Allen's films, I wanted to choose one I had never seen before, and so I we kind of settled on this one. And which for 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 context for the audience, they'll probably already know this, but we already did. Here comes Cookie with John Ekstrom because he he really wanted to talk Burns and Allen. I wanted to, too. And it it matched up at the right time. But for a tease for the audience, we've already kind of talked about doing College Swing in conjunction with another guest that we've had before. Um, So it you won't stop here. But unfortunately, your first stop for Burns and Allen on the Ballyhoo is not a promising one <laughs> yeah um i almost like you have to invite me back to do like a better movie not a, a not that this is like it's entertaining i know ex- i know exactly what you're saying <laughs> it's entertaining but also like i'm sure we're gonna talk about like that the main love story is not fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you could say it's downright stupid. But <laughs> um but let's 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 be as nice as we can, I guess. I mean, this this kind of love story isn't un- in in typical of the era. It's it No. It could be a fun rom-com on its own merit. You could try, you'd have to tr- touch up the dialogue a bunch and you need another actor. Because we'll talk about yeah. that in a second. Um, yeah. But let's let's start off high and then completely sink. Um, <laughs> you, you, as long as I've known you, the Jack Benny fandom is only one part of you. You do also carry a huge affection for George Burns and Gracie Allen. Um, guilty as charged. I yeah. love Burns and Allen. Mm-hmm. So what did you get into them the same way you did Jack, where you were kind of flipping around on the nostalgia networks and whatnot? So I found Jack through, so I first was into Johnny Carson because I kind of, as Zach, you've said, I'm a comedy nerd and I'm an appreciator of comedy. So I love Conan. Conan likes Johnny. Johnny liked Jack. So I found Jack through Johnny. And then I was on a, looking at some, a DVD full of Johnny Carson and friends and so I c- watched all the Johnny Carson episodes. I watched Jack's episodes. And then I was like, well, let's watch this duo called Burns and Allen. And oh my God, I thought they were just the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, that I think I found Burns and Allen. A- I definitely found Burns and Allen after Jack. Um, but I didn't. I became a big fan of it because my sister responded to the material when she was very young and we would listen to it together. Then as I got, but, but that was also in junction conjunction with me finding, Oh God. Um, 
the the John Denver George Burns movie by Carl Reiner. So my exposure to uh, them as a duo was always kind of intermixed with a couple of different things happening at once. Um, but you, it seems like you found it. You almost like you found it through the lineage of of Conan, and then took the detour because it's a natural one when it comes to Jack. Is that Jack and George were good friends? And then I was going to ask, did you know that they were good friends before you watched it? I didn't know anything about Jack or George, really. And I don't remember if the episode that was curated for the disc was one. I feel like it was one where um, George and Gracie are in a rail car with Jack. Yeah. And then Jack leaves when there's a outage with the lights when the bill comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's what I remember. So it's kind of clear to see in the dialogue there that they are friends, at least in this show. And since I had seen him in other things, I assumed that they were friendly mm-hmm. in real life because they were starring on each other's shows. Yeah. Yeah, they and that friendship kind of carries into the legend of Jack almost as heavily as Jack himself. Um, as we all know, Jack was a pretty easy mark for making somebody laugh, but George was the one who he could literally just move his middle finger and Jack would laugh. Um, so I guess within this context, um, as it relates to discovering Burns and Allen. Was this the first of their films that you had seen, or um, have you seen any other ones prior to this watch? Prior to this watch, I've seen a couple. I've seen, um, I've seen the call. I've seen College Swing. I've seen. I feel like I've seen Damsel in Distress, but it's been a while, and it wasn't. I still haven't seen Damsel in Distress. That one. It fun? wasn't as. It was fun. I like I was expecting more out of a movie with Fred Astaire though. Yeah. Okay, that's very fair. That's very fair. Um and I feel like I, and I've seen a, I've seen them in like big broadcast films. Um but I would I would say like I I feel like oh, I've seen Honolulu. I feel oh, like. Oh, yeah. Well, Honolulu should, can, can definitely be discussed. We just have to talk about what the fuck Eleanor Powell is doing at a certain point in the movie. So, just, I don't remember what you're uh, referencing. Because uh, some black faces involved. Let's put it. Oh, that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in like a lot of these movies that I'm just like, OK, I'm just going to focus in on this thing. Focus on her. On. Focus on her feet dancing and not the fucking terrible makeup she's wearing. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. There's um was it I'm maybe it was Honolulu. I don't know. They sang Honolulu like a like a Honolulu type song, so um but there's a lot of these movies like I feel like Burns and Allen need almost more of a part because mm-hmm. Fun to see Gracie kind of go off the rails, but I want to see like 
I want to see a more tamed down version of it that you see in their TV show a little bit sometimes. You want the more, where, you want the more domesticated version of it, essentially. Yes, because it almost feels unreal and campish. Yeah, well, that well then in, in that case, here comes Cookie might throw you for a loop because here comes Cookie is is literally the raw, unfiltered. Gracie and George are not a couple. They're not married in the situation. So you are literally dealing with George and Gracie, the comedy act. And with Gracie unchained, it becomes chaos. Um, and I, th yeah. and I think I put that in the, I think I put that in the, uh, somewhere in the description of the, the here comes cookie episode. But that is like when we were, I listened back to that episode in prep for this because I was like, oh my God, that's right. This movie is such a grab bag. Like, but it's yeah. one that, but it makes sense for George and Gracie. This movie does not. <laughs> it's it's weird because like, it's not like I don't expect it because even in the radio show, there's like big chunks where like, they're not really this married couple that we come to know them as in their mm -hmm. TV show. Um, but I prefer the TV show because as George kind of explains, like people knew we were married and we weren't fooling anybody. And that's very much how I feel when I'm watching, when I'm watching them. Cause it's like, otherwise, why would you put up with this? <laughs> this this girl even if it is like an act you know like why would you stick around for this like if you weren't really like in love right it, so like i really do like this the era of like i love her that's why yeah so then no that and and actually you brought up something that's pretty relevant to the discussion and I and granted, I have not listened to as much of the pre nineteen thirty eight nineteen thirty eight stuff, um, but at the round the time that this uh, film was coming out, they were under the title "The Adventures of Gracie," sponsored by White Owl Cigars. I um, yeah, I I know this, but I haven't listened to a lot of it. But I definitely know a lot of what George was saying, like this wasn't working. We were tanking, you know, like, well that, and that leads to a lot of stuff, like something that you and I should get into at some point, which is the Gracie for president run because that I have a podcast episode about that. Yeah. And you, and, and for, for more of that, visit all the classics. Um, when, after you're finished listening to this, you go right to all the classics guys. This is how <laughs> this works. Um, right. In fact, um, although you're, you're being too kind because I don't, I don't keep up with my podcast anymore. So it is mostly just um, what I have is what I'm offering for the most part. There's a couple of episodes that I've still yet to edit. Right. But you are here. You get to a little bit to let your, your Burns and F Allen flag fly. Um, Yay. Now, my um, Burns and Allen phone case fly. What the, wait, hold the, hold, the, hold the fuck up. Hold the flying fuck up. Where did you get that? Um, Red Bubble. Red Bubble? Yeah. <laughs> Do they make a Jack one? There are ones, yes. I debated about it, but ultimately I decided on this one. 
Uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Bella Who Review. I'm going shopping on redbubble.com, whatever the fuck it's called. Uh, I, this, is, this is why I have a girlfriend who knows the internet better than I do. She showed me Etsy. She showed me wonderful things with Etsy. I have, if you'll, if you'll notice, this lovely display. Uh, this will be cut out of the episode, by the way. This lovely display of the Jack Stamp. Then somebody made a diorama out of it. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, I know. She built that for you. Yeah, she bought she bought that for me. Yeah, both of good them. Good girlfriend. Yeah, I know. Great girlfriend who I just dropped off at the airport. Hence why I'm a little loopy today. But it doesn't really matter to this discussion because finding out information about this film was kind of a loopy effort in and of itself. Um, now. I will provide some context here. I've already known that this that this discussion was going to lead into me being negative, Zach, which I don't like being. Um, because I remember watching this film when that triple pack DVD was available through, I think it was Netflix rental service, and it had Here Comes Cookie, Six of a Kind, and this movie. And out of all three of them, Here Comes Cookie was the one I enjoyed the most. Six of a Kind was fun, but I wasn't as into W.C. Fields or Charlie Ruggles as I am now. Um, but Love and Bloom was definitely, I was confused as shit going like, where the fuck are George and Gracie in this movie? At least <laughs> 500 times I kept thinking right? it to myself and I stuck with it. But the thing that I was surprised to learn as I rewatched it for the first time in a long ass time. Um, Cause it, I, like I said, it's not one I go back to. I own it, but I don't go back to it a lot. <laughs> they are in the movie a lot more than I remember. Not by much, but they're there. Yes. The, the, the problem is, is that they're supporting characters. <laughs> yes. Okay. I have written down. Cause I watched this twice. I watched it the first time and then I refreshed my memory and I was like, okay, every time I watch this about almost at the 30 minute mark, I am just hoping to God, George and Gracie show up <laughs> because I'm just like, this is boring as all oh, get out. Like I'm not, not that uh, it's just like, I like a good rom-com and but I like a good one mm -hmm. and like, <laughs> and so when I'm like watching, hearing this dialogue, I am feeling myself tune out mm -hmm. and like, I feel myself tune out and I'm like, okay, this is like, and also the dot, like the stuff that he's so supposedly talking about and being all deep about music and stuff. I was like, this is like, yes, what you're saying is true, mm -hmm. but you're acting like you're the first person who's ever thought of this, <laughs> and that's dumb. Yeah, Th this is this is a case of every cliche in the book is kind of thrown into the blender that is this film. Um, and if it weren't, With oh, go ahead. No, just with the twist of instead of it being the man or, yeah, the woman that's, like, all, like... Lovey-dovey. Mm -hmm, and the man... The man's the innocent 
one and this one. Yes, the innocent, bland one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But that doesn't make it exciting. No, it Um, doesn't. And also, like, her sin, there's probably more, which I would have liked to have seen more, because at this movie, at face value, her sin is just her family works in a carnival. Yeah, well, she she does have a moment that we'll get to in the plot breakdown where she talks about the things her father basically roped her into, and they all sound right. like they actually belong in a pre-code movie with Barbara Stanwyck and not coming out of Dixie Lee for a comedy. <laughs> right, but, like, it's a throwaway line, so, like, these are, like, kind of lines that, like, if that was what we were talking about more... I would have liked to have seen that more or like, or establish that she's fed up with it. Like have it, you're already 15 minutes longer than you should be with this movie. Just add another 15 minutes of her life in the carnival prior to uh, all of this. And like have two kids running around that look like George and Gracie for comedic relief. And then, but you can do that thing that they do at the end of love thy neighbor, where you just have like Burns and Allen's heads on top of children's bodies or something. I don't know, but um, you know, create a bobblehead effect, but instead we are kind of given a very bland generalized, like she's no good. She's a, she's a no good dame. Like she's seen some shit and done some shit, and blah, blah, blah. but it doesn't add up to anything. Whatsoever. Well, yeah, you have no idea what what she's really done. Yeah, and even like, and it sounds like it's been forced upon her. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it doesn't seem like she's actually all that bad. And so, th- the conflict is just non-existent. Right, and. It's it's sort of a shame for a couple of different grounds because there are slight moments of dialogue that I enjoy, but they have to do with character specifics and not the plot. Um, there are characters outside of George and Gracie that I like in this film, like the owner of the music shop. Um, I actually like mm-hmm. him as a character. Um, and to an extent, I enjoy the performance of the father, even though the colonel is revealed to be a very big piece of shit um i am very okay i'm very sus about the father i don't know how much we're gonna talk about the father but like we could totally talk as much we there we might as well this movie is virtually nothing we might as well find something to talk about (laughs) okay when i when i was watching this movie i wrote in my notes it's like there is nothing to show this but i get the feeling that he's abused his daughter and like not just beat like i feel like he has sexually abused her somehow that that could very well be but i i couldn't get a definite answer out of that right I can- right but it just has that feeling because like the the relationship between this family like throw aside that they're in a carnival it's just very strange because when the dad says uh, he he doesn't treat George like he's his son. In fact, I had to rewatch it to make sure I was like remembering <laughs> it correct that George is the son. Um, and it's like he says, "What do you know of fatherly affection?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
Ooh, cringe, that is your son. But also, what do you know of fatherly affection to your daughter? That's crazy. Yeah, that, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of strange things that this this dad is so mysterious and he's wrapped up in this. So like the for for listeners who may not fully remember or did not listen to the Here Comes Cookie episode, there was a a note that I made about Gracie when it comes to being in films. There's a tendency to actually subvert pre-code plots that uh, that she can excel in when given the opportunity, and Here Comes Cookie as the best example. Now, I don't have other major examples beyond that. Like, it more has to do with moment by moment of, like, if you think this is going to be a sexual joke, think again, it's Gracie Allen. Um, but uh, when it comes to this, they actively just shove in a pre-code notion in the middle of a movie that has not warranted it whatsoever. And that's really strange considering that if you went down that route, you're basically making a knockoff version of the movie Babyface with um with Barbara Stanwyck. So uh if your goal is to make like a knockoff version of Babyface, you you didn't even come close to succeeding. You would have had to remove Burns and Allen, get very different actors and you would have had to stick to your guns, but this is post-code. At this point, no. So I'm I'm keeping curious as we go through the plot if this script was initially supposed to be more of a pre-code affair and then just turned sanitized over time before it got sold. Because that's a plot element that seems more like a moral high ground for, for Vi and not for anything related to the story. It's just... It's it's literally just a moral moment, and it means nothing to the movie. But we'll get into it. Um, I did want to point out, though, there was a likelihood that this episode wouldn't be of normal length because when you look on IMDb, when you even try to find a Wikipedia for this thing, it's like virtually empty. And it's because this movie, I think, is relegated to people who still enjoy George and Gracie and uh, maybe enjoy um, like ancillary plots about uh, two young kids in the city falling in love. But thanks to like digging deeper, we have found that there was an actual production timeline of this film. And in fact, we can start by debunking something right off the bat because IMDb has this listed as released in April of 1935. Well, when you dig into Variety, you actually find out that this film was released about a month earlier, um, at the very least in certain select cities. Whether or not the wide distribution was in April, I can't confirm. But I do know that there's a there's a couple of notes. One is from March 13th, 1935, of uh, of one city playing it um, uh, in I think uh, in, in alongside Great Hotel Murder for Fox and um, Car 99 for Paramount. Um, but another big note is about an Indiana ex- exhibitor on March 20th that uh, lists a couple of uh, titles, including Gay Divorcee. Um, and the note says, in addition to Love and Bloom on its screens, the net results t- look just fair at X amount of dollars. So this film released earlier, and in fact, it was previewed as far back as February. So I have a feeling that 
if if IMDb is getting an April month, it means that that's where like most of it was released as wide as possible. But in fact, the release dates should be listed as like select engagements or something like that at best. Now, I'm not the best at reading through Variety's exhibitor reports. So if I'm wrong, I will more than gladly accept defeat. It just seems to me that IMDb just threw an arbitrary date there based off of some piece of information that might have been misleading. Um, but the other thing is, is that this film does actually have some note uh, and merit to it, but in the most ancillary way. But like, we'll start at the top here. This script, um, uh, this script by Frank R. Adams um, was originally titled Win or Lose. It was bought by Paramount on July 26, 1934 is when Variety announces the purchase. And they s claim that it's going to be a tuner for either Bing Crosby or Lanny Ross. So this was initially like thought of, at least by the press, to be a film for Bing Crosby or Lanny Ross, not... Even we're not even we're not even touching George and Gracie at this point. We're not even touching Joe Morrison at this point. But nevertheless, as as the months go on, uh, we learn that other writers uh, are brought in in order to uh, fix up the script a little bit. Um, I have a report here um, where uh, they have Charles Brackett coming in just into Paramount at this point, and one of his first assignments is to brush up the script, win or lose. So uh, keep in mind, again, this movie at this particular moment is called Win or Lose. So, mm -hmm. um, and uh, this comes from a report of September 6th, 1934. Charles Brackett joins the flock of writers at Paramount to garner one-year contracts and is working on the script for Win or Lose for Barney Glazer Productions at the studio. Um, now that's actually Benjamin Glazer, um, uh, Benjamin L. Glazer. So I guess his nickname was Barney at some, some, some point. Um, so, so then there's that. And then somewhere around October, <laughs> Burns and Allen get attached to this script. Um, now they had at a certain point turned down an offer to make a film in Britain uh, just around the time that they get attached to this project as part of their two-year contract at Paramount. They'd already extended it for a two-year period. But I have this report that I thought was interesting to show you how in demand they were. From September 4th, 1934, um, much ado about nothing, BIP wanted Burns and Allen, who just couldn't say yes. This is coming off the wire from London from August 25th, so it took a couple of days to get it to these shores. Before sailing for America, Burns and Allen were offered $50,000 to do a picture for a British international. Team turned it down. Then BIP offered them $3,000 to do a bit in a movie called Radio Calling of 1934, to which they also turned a deaf ear. BIP uh, gradually advanced the offer a thousand per raise to five thousand, but wanted Americans to work from eight to eight. They were then were satisfied to have them work from nine to five. Eventually, not being in a position to raise the salary, company came down in time, which was finally agreed upon by the film company to be from nine to twelve. But on investigation, it was found that Burns and Allen have an exclusive contract with Paramount for two more years, so all their effort was wasted. So a company in the, the UK wanted Burns and Allen. And keep in mind, 
they did hit a bit of a success in radio in Britain uh, earlier on. So they they are world renowned, but they they literally are getting offers from the UK to do films, and they're giving they're getting offered real money. It's not nothing, but yeah, but still. But- you know, if yeah. you've got a contract at Paramount at this time, you're not getting out of that contract. So they get attached to this more or less near October. And by November, they are scheduled to arrive probably just after Thanksgiving. Um, I don't know what the Thursday was, the last Thursday, the third Thursday of the month was for November uh, that year. But we do know that um, around the end of November, there's a two week delay. Um, uh, to move it over to November 30th. Um, and then there's a report from nine, November 26, 1934 from New York that Burns and Allen are due at the Paramount Studio in Hollywood on the 26th uh, to start Win or Lose. First of two pictures they will make this trip. Bobby Dolan, director of the orchestra on the team's general cigar broadcast, goes along for the coast airing. So they're going to move the show over to the West Coast temporarily to go make the movies, and then they'll come back over to the East Coast. Um, around that same time, um, they um, also start making some more casting. Um, on December 4th, uh, we have uh, uh, J.C. Nugent, who plays the father, signing on in New York by Paramount for featured spot in Win or Lose, which will have Burns and Allen in the top spots under the direction of Elliot Nugent. I didn't find if they were related at somehow, but I just thought that they was are. kind of funny. <laughs> they, they are. The dad was the director's dad. Oh, snap. So it's kind of like a Treasure of the Sierra Madre situation, except yeah. it's not Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> yeah. Not very few, very few films are, but this certainly is not Treasure of the Sierra Madre. That's that's what I'll put on the poster for this movie. Definitely not Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Zach. We could have, um, we could definitely do a whose line is it anyway of uh, what this movie is not. <laughs> it's definitely not College Swing. It's definitely <laughs> not Caligula. It's definitely not The Godfather. <laughs> I don't even know what this movie is trying to be. I think it's trying to be money. I think it's trying to be money. <laughs> it's it's not trying to be funny. It's trying to be it, money. <laughs> uh, try, maybe. Um, I don't even. I don't even see how they even think that it's going to be money. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Uh, this movie is like the beest movie ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a blah hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> Those are strong fucking words. <laughs> it's a blah hallmark. <laughs> That's the blah network, dude. <laughs> <laughs> And I know that yep. people have fun with those Hallmark movies, but they are, let's face it, they are blah. I feel so. Yeah. My mother does not. <laughs> My girlfriend doesn't either, so let's not offend any of our other loved ones on this show. But um, uh, there is a there is a bit of humor I get out of how cheesy they are, and I believe she shares the same sentiment. Um, but uh, regardless, 
Uh, I will tell you right now, we're talking about blah. Speaking of the word blah, let's talk about Joe Morrison, a gentleman who made only seven films. And they were all within the span of 1934, 1935, and then he is pretty much done with Hollywood. <laughs> uh, I think there's a reason, unfortunately. He is pretty blah, uh, to say the absolute least. Um, I don't like being mean, but... I feel like Paramount was trying to build a new leading man, and they just this is a. I want to. You said that they brought writers in for this. Like, mm -hmm. what did the script look like before? I wonder if they they got a script that was more melodramatic and brought in writers to touch it up for a more lighter comic effect, because. Yeah. You, you start seeing the evolution of it because in August, Joe Morrison is signed. Um, Joe, Joe, Joe Morrison, per uh, the August 15th variety from 1934, Joe Morrison playing Picture Houses cast gets here September 1st to go into Paramount's Win or Lose, the Frank R. Adams story. And there, the original, um, the original uh, gal that they had attached to the lead role was not who we would end up talking about. Um, in fact, the original uh, co-star would have been uh, Marion Mansfield, who I've, who I'm not as I'm not familiar with. Um, Marion, Marion Mansfield. Yes. Marion Mansfield, not, not Marilyn Mansfield or Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield. Yeah. No, no, none of the Manfield Mon Marion, not Marion Davis, certainly. <laughs> Marion Davis. If, if, if William Randolph Hearst allowed Marion Davis to be in this movie, I I would have been I would have been well. There's your proof to put him in a booby hatch because he's clearly not thinking straight. If he put if if William Randolph Hearst had put Marion Davis in this movie, there there would be no human being on earth that would be able to say that Citizen Kane did him dirty because I'm like no, he's pretty much that insane. <laughs> Um, how would you put, why would you propel your lover into this movie? No, it's Marion Mansfield. Not sure much about her. If any of the listeners are, please give me a ring. I want to know. I really, really want to know. Not like to the point of desperation where I will go insane if I don't, but I I'm open to listening. Um, and we also have a, a, a little notice here from the next day is that Burns and Allen air here tonight. Burns and Allen here for a resumption of their Paramount film contract. Begin West Coast broadcasting tonight for their White Owl Cigar program over CBS. Robert Swan has been tapped to announce the series from this end. New routine tagged The Adventure of Gracie started three weeks ago in New York. So this is also a part of the cycle where they're still trying to figure out what the fuck the radio show is going to be. So they're not they're not in the routine. They're not even in the uh, Heinz Honey and Almond Cream and Spam routine, where they have sort of a established motif down before they completely overhaul it for the, for the domestication plot line. So this is still in the middle of them being more film successes than even radio successes. Um, I'd yeah. argue that that's a, like they had a higher ranking in film than even Jack did by a certain measure. Oh, um, I would, I would say so. Mm -hmm. They seem Seem to get booked more for roles. I, I mean, not that Jack didn't. I don't know. Jack. Jack. Uh, Jack, yeah. Jack did, but also Burns and Allen started in film way before Jack. Well, no, no, no. Yeah. I take that back. 
they started around the same time, but Jack started focusing a little bit more on radio by 32 to 35 before he goes back to, to MGM for It's in the Air. Um, right. That, then they start becoming a little bit more of an a par, but I, I get the feeling that Burns and Allen were a little bit more film-centric, whereas Jack had started establishing a radio persona that was a little bit more solid by comparison. Do you get the feeling... So, like, College Swing is an exception. There's there's a fair amount of movies that they know what to do with Burns and Allen. And I know you said, like, this movie absolutely did not. But I get this feeling in a lot, a, a lot of, like, I would say about half of their movies where it seems like they don't know what to do with Burns and Allen. So they just kind of, like, put them, like, let's put the kooky kids in the corner and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll it, uh, it, just be our fun comedy break here, and like it's it's just kind of like random. Yeah, I get that feeling from Honolulu. I get that feeling, but I but that's where it stops for me because of the Burns and Allen films that I've seen. Um, Six of a Kind works because it's kind of a um uh an ensemble movie because WC Fields is also in there and Charlie Ruggles is also in there. So it's not like, it's not like they're trying to make this one person's movie. It's clearly a mishmash movie. Well, and they, they add to, they add to the plot. They add to, they add, they actually add to the plot. Yes, they do. Yeah. And the zaniness does add to the plot. Mm -hmm. This movie, I feel like, you could take it out, it'd be a movie. Right. It would be, and, a bit, but but Burns and Allen would have zero to none implication for the movie's success whatsoever. Right. Well, and uh, it wouldn't, It their little parts don't add a whole lot to yeah. the plot. Yeah. I think they're needed, but it doesn't add a whole lot to the plot, and it it isn't like their what they're doing their comedy is in keeping with any sort of tone of with this movie it feels very discombobulated because we have the funny the funny antics and then we have this serious love story thing Mm -hmm. yeah well and they and they had um because that ensemble nature seemed to work out for them pretty well. We can't forget International House. International House is absolutely an ensemble movie on every single level, and it has a, a whole range of people from W.C. Fields on down to Bella Lugosi in it. And they, as a unit, work, but it's because it's a whole fucking hotel. and not. Um, it's like College Swing. Colleges have yeah. a lot of space, plenty of room for more comedians. Right. Um, but, th- but this film is centralized to what six or seven characters right there is no real like they try to almost make them a b plot but they don't have any plot besides we're just trying to find vi yeah and and the the way like they could have bumped into her on the street and it would have been definitely which is essentially what it feels like happened even though they were like kind of playing almost like feels like they're just like an ice cream truck going around, like trying to 
find <laughs> like <Yeah>. find my. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I I actually just thought of something here. There's a guy from um, College Swing and a couple of other films um, that I feel would have been wonderful. And then there's another gal from College Swing that I think would have been wonderful if you stuck these two in here, and it would have been Ben Blue and Martha Ray. If you had yeah. Ben Blue and Martha Ray as these roles, then the expectation is not the same, and you can meet it on a different plane of uh, plane of acceptance. Because you're not expecting they they were just a they they are a comedy duo that have worked well together in certain respects, whether it's um uh college holiday, the 1936 Jack film, which for all its problems, everybody in the movie is doing exactly what they need to do. It's just that story is a fucking strange, uh, a strange thing. Um, and, uh, but also that just their individual talents, you could probably pair them and have one of them be the more dominant. Like maybe Ben blue is a little bit more ditzy and Martha Ray is kind of yelling in his ear or something like that. That, that would work for me. But with Burns and Allen, I have an expectation. And that's only because of hindsight. If I was an audience member in 1935, I may not be as picky. I might just be like, well, it's cool to just see them even for a second. <laughs> you know? Like, Maybe. It's, but the, the other element of this, too, is we're, we've been kind of like milling around it. Um, and um, this comes from December 12th, 1934, where we see Dixie Lee enter the project from December 12th. Uh, after three years retirement, Dixie Lee goes into the femme lead in Paramount's win or lose. Burns and Allen are also in the pick, which starts Monday with Elliot Nugent directing. So who's Dixie Lee? Well, um, she was Her married. Last... She was, <laughs> she was married to a crooner, um, an old groaner, if you will. Um, yeah. I heard that when the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, he enters our world. Um, yeah. it's, this is the Dick, this is the famous Dixie that Bing Crosby was married to, but something to keep in mind is that Dixie was actually a little bit more of an ahead of her plain star than Crosby when they married. And in fact, the trade papers got Bing's name wrong when they married. <laughs> Call them like Murray something or whatever. It had no, it was like nowhere even close to his actual name. But this is near the end of her career. This is her second to last movie. And you wonder if perhaps this is, perhaps this is one of the reasons why. Um, She's not and, given anything to do. So no, it's almost no. like, why would you? And I, yeah. I, I do wonder because. Bing was having picking up his film role success around this time. He had a couple of um, cameos and stuff that were starting to really he, uh, that like I would recognize. He had know? a big, big. He, I know one of the big breaks he had was the big broadcast, uh, the mm -hmm. original, the first one, and then little by little he starts gaining momentum as this depression every man that everybody can identify with. Dixie Lee. Uh, the first parts of her marriage are are rough with Bing because by by March fourth of nineteen thirty one, Dixie announces that they're separating and that a, a divorce suit would follow that charged mental cruelty. Um, 
<laughs> she actually said, we've only been married about six months, but we have found out that we are not suited for each other. Our separation is an amiable one. With the And the only reason for it is that we just cannot get along. Bing is a fine boy as a friend, but married, he and I just cannot be happy. But a reconciliation came around. Um, I, I, I've, I've, I gather that a lot of it had to do with Bing's drinking and probably carousing. Uh, just It doesn't matter if it's not written. There's some assumption to be made in There's, some sense. I have also read, I have read in a sense that it was both of their drinking and around the time like she was kind of I, I have read that he stopped drinking and she started drinking harder yeah and there's even reports like there's an interview with gary who i understand that gary's a contentious figure in the bing crosby universe because it's because of the book going my own way um because not everybody agrees with what's written in the book um there are Certainly Bing family members who don't fully agree with it. There are even people who said that Gary made a lot of stuff up in order to oppress publishers. Um, uh, but on the other hand, because he's detailing abuse, even of its era, it doesn't matter. It's still abuse. It's not, I'm not going to like completely throw his allegations under the bus, but he did say something that I think is kind of universally true, regardless of where you stand with Gary is that Bing couldn't understand why somebody would just keep doing something that was hurting them. And he kept trying to get therapists in for Dixie at a certain point, and they would just, nothing would work, because as soon as they left, she would start drinking again. So she just developed this problem, and I wonder if her retirement was uh, propelled a little bit more by alcoholism. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. Um, and it, it really, it wasn't the point of this episode, but it's something that I thought of within the last 24 hours. I'm like, if this is her second to last film, something's not right here. And if you're coming out of retirement and you were a pretty big star, there's always a chance that you can actually make it. But it's also maybe she wanted to be a mother too. I have no idea. Yeah. Like that, that also was what I was thinking. I was like, so Bing's career is really starting to take off around this time, film-wise. And, like, they're, they've been married since 1930. Um, you know, I'm assuming children rearing is happening. Um, so I, I would probably... Yeah, and Gary Giddens, uh, a Crosby biographer, has described Dixie Lee as a very shy person and a private person. Um, and she did record uh, she did record records for Decca uh, up until about 1936. The final her final recording was a do was were two duets with her husband on August 19th, 1936, which were a fine romance in the way you look tonight. And then after that, she's done. And again, I'm not. I'm not saying definitively that drinking was the cause of her retiring from show business. I'm just wondering if that didn't help matters. Um, Cause it's possible, but I don't know yeah. how accelerated her alcoholism was at this point. So yeah. it, she could have been no different than any other drinker in Hollywood at that point. When you say like the recordings and stuff, the only thing that I could really find that could indicate money for this is that 
they had some albums with songs from this movie, but there again, like, if they treated it like a musical, even, it would have been... That could have solved a lot of the problems because it'd be like a lighthearted romp. You'd have your comedy people, you have your music, and you don't treat the comedy too hard. Like so, like it could have solved a lot of problems. You bring up a good point. Let, let's elaborate on that for a second. Let's like let's take take a second on this. This is a film that has the thinnest plot imaginable. There are a lot of musicals that are great successes and even successful critically and in our hearts that are based on thin premises. I mean, like, it's not... I mean, there is a a world where this film becomes as viable, if but certainly not as great, as any other more frivolous musical of the era. I feel like the only reason that it's not gone in that direction is because there was a certain downtrend with musicals by the end of the of the mid-1930s because they basically kicked off the sound genre more or less and then the interest kind of dies down so so musicals at warner brothers for example were like completely stopped production was stopped um mgm stopped productions on musicals for a second because the trend had run out and so now you started looking towards another trend which gangster films and horror films started fitting this trend fitting the the uh box office trend a lot too so i wonder if there was a thought to make this a musical but then you get scared and then you just include a bunch of songs that could become hit records but you're not emphasizing as a musical because you think about it and the whole plot is they work in this music store and they all in love. <laughs> and he wants to be a great musician. Selling, he wants to be a yeah. great selling. Hit, like he wants to be a hit musician. That's exactly it. Yeah. This should be. Yeah. A, yes, this should have been a fucking musical. My fucking god! I think we stumbled on the real reason this movie sucks is that it should have had more singing <laughs> and less talking I, from Joe Morrison. <laughs> well. Okay, it has plenty of music, but it's boring. Mm-hmm. And not because not because the music is bad. The music actually I think could have been a thing. Be- but there is no production to it at all. Like if you're like what one of them she's just like literally laying on a just like laying on a piano falling asleep and he's singing to her like and the shot is boring. That's really where I started begging for George and Gracie to come. Because, like, <laughs> the shot, although, like, maybe a little, I don't even remember. But it was... The, the, even uh, the, over, the over the piano and under the piano, correct? Yeah, even if it was inter- an interesting shot, it's just... At that point, there's, like, I want to see, like, I want to see something more at that point. I want to see. I don't want to fall asleep. It feels like a lullaby. Like she, he's singing her essentially a lullaby, and it's not a lullaby time. Like you don't want to fall asleep in the middle of a movie. This, this, the. I think that the idea of over and under the piano is cute. The problem is, is you're it, right. It's fucking boring. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a very hard. Uh, it's a, it's a hard thing to even look dynamic, no matter how much movement of the camera you're possessing. Um, 
there's no editing that can really save the scene as it exists today whatsoever. No, no. And like, they should have like had some kind of like musical production around it. Like dancing fairyland, like something, something, anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Don't put sleep at 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Now, pulling out the imaginary watch. Well, we're going to get to the boredom of this film in detail in just a second, but there is one more note is that um, I always find it it's interesting when they report um, uh, people sick on set and whatnot, but um, the, uh, uh, the, there's a, there was a column at one point, I guess, in Variety called Ill in Picks, P-I-X, um, <laughs> and uh, among the reports of a couple of different people being sick, Gracie Allen and Dixie Lee were both home with colds um, uh, as of this report on December 29th, 1934. Uh, Paramount filmed around them yesterday fighting a jumbled schedule on win or lose. Um, Now, sometimes when you read that, you think, oh, somebody's got a cold that's code for something else. I, I can't. I don't know if I can speak for Dixie, but I know that Gracie had her own health issues throughout her life. So it's not like she might not have like she might have actually genuinely gotten sick at one point so well there's two people sick at the same time somebody was probably spreading some kind of bug yeah so that's what tells me like oh shit well it's and it's not to the point of like shutting down the entire studio for like a month so um i think it this is the case where like unlike some other points where we've pointed out on the show that it's not an actual illness uh that they're reporting this is the case where i'm like yeah they probably just had colds oh shit well just film around them for now. This this script's already messed up and this film's already messed up. Um, but why don't we go ahead and rip off the band-aid that is this plot and just go into it because we're, we're, we're in for a rough ride. Um, we open up and from the, from the very beginning, this film has shown its bland colors because there's this, the, the title card is nothing. <laughs> there's no, the background is triangles like like the the stark little like edge lights like kind of the ones coming off of my screen right now because of the way the lights set up there's nothing to indicate anything fun in this movie it's literally the title is love and bloom which again happens at a certain point the name changes but love and bloom was a hit from bing crosby that then got turned into a theme song for a very um suave debonair and handsome comedian i hope do you know who i'm talking about yeah jack benny but also like (laughs) why was this movie named that it drives me insane i feel like because that song was a hit especially because it was introduced in a bing crosby hit you could there maybe was a thought with oh shit this film sucks let's stick a title on it and and trick people into coming in I don't think it was a trick, though, because I feel like that would have been like there would have been like five people that come in and then they say to all their friends, don't go. The song's not in the movie. And then you'd be done for. So what I think happened is like since this is something like I feel like. Maybe Bing was supposed to make an appearance for like one day at the music shop and sing sing the song, especially since he has, like, this connection with his <laughs> wife being in the film. Say, I heard but, your film is uninteresting. Let me come in here. Oh, God, this is way too uninteresting. I'm getting out of here. 
Pretty much. I don't know. That'd be like, a great it, cameo. If somebody just walked in and out like a revolving door. <laughs> Walks in, just goes like, nope. In your, in your next movie, just have somebody going continually in a circle. I'll, I'll do, I'll, you know what? I'll fly you in. I'll pay for you to fly in and do that. <laughs> I'll set up a fake revolving door. What, what, what was the purpose of having this girl go around and around in a circle? Yes. Um, well, you see, I, I wanted to tank any career that I had as soon as possible. And I and I knew that Hope would not do me wrong in this respect. She and I both agree that I need rest. And I, I do... <laughs> Don't blame me for taking your career. <laughs> not, not blaming... No, not blaming you. You're helping me escape stress. I'm helping you. Okay, yes, you're helping okay. me escape the stress of film production. Yeah, Thank but you. you just said, like... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, we get you with a revolving door... And you know what I find interesting is I once watched a commentary with Gary Marshall speaking of like random things in movies, but he really wanted to put in a movie um, someone eating like like string cheese or no, no, not eating string cheese, having a violin or not violin. Why am I talking like this? The um, a harp. Slicing, slicing cheese with a harp. He really wanted that in a movie. He tried to get it in Princess Diaries, but he like the they made him cut the scene, and he was like, "I will get it into a movie." And it was like, is that why he kept making all those holiday movies near the end of his life? Is he's just like somewhere? <laughs> I'll find the script that one day allows me to grate cheese with a harp. It's a, here's the problem. He's too late. Harpo Marx did about 12 to 13 movies. And and I bet you, Gary, God bless you, if, if, if they wanted to do it, the time would have been then, not now. He got really close with Princess Diaries. Why would it also- have been in there? We we don't have to get too far into this, but the question has to be asked: Why the Princess Diaries? Out of any, it's what is Anne Hathaway going to grate the fucking cheese? Like what the shit? <laughs> in the fancy dinner party, you know. Oh, I guess that would make sense because she's not quite a princess yet. She's still kind of a slacker teenager. But uh, well, don't and, worry, you know. <laughs> and. Uh- I mean, do you remember the line where she breaks like the pinky of the statue and she puts it in like the the mouth? You know what? That is true. That is true. And and someone's staring at it later and they're like, what is it? It's cheese. There you you go. There you go. That's how you do it. It's it's, it's, or Julie or Julie Andrews is like, now this is the way a princess prepares her cheeses. And then she and then it cuts away to her grating it with a harp and goes, oh, I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. That that's yeah. how you get that done. But yeah, that this this movie could have done with um some lighthearted moments. It should have had cheese being grated on a harp by Harpo Marx is what it de- needed. We don't get that though, um, uh, for multiple reasons. But we do open up on a carnival, and that's always a promising thing for a movie. If you open up on a carnival, all right, you've got me. You've got me. You've got me. Um, what's this? Gracie's going to do, uh, going to do a, a, uh, an Arabian dance, uh, with George playing the Calliope. Um, I, I'm totally down. Um, and. Or Cal Murphy. 
Well, Calope, yeah. <laughs> there's two pronounced pronunciations of Calliope and Calliope. Calliope. Gotta love Gracie. Gotta love Gracie. Gotta love mm-hmm. Gracie. Um, but we do get the we do get the sense too of uh, um, the Colonel, the uh, the uh, Vice Father that we'll talk about here. Um, he's already kind of like a little bit of a sleaze ball. He's introducing a bunch of hula dancers and whatnot. We switch over to Gracie um, as Fatina doing what is more described as like a Turkish act. Um, which I mean, this is clearly of an era where where geography, let alone sensitivity, is not of a concern. Um, <laughs> uh, but we get the song "Here Comes Cookie." This is the song that was such a hit that they then did another movie called "Here Comes Cookie," in which the line is mentioned, but the song is not sang. But "Here Comes Cookie" was a hit, a big hit as a song. So. That makes more sense. If you even if you're not going to have the song in the movie, the title makes a little bit more sense. If especially if you say it just one time, then this love and bloom, which literally has nothing to do with the movie. Um, but um, we get her doing the the dance, and it is adorable. It is cute. Watching, I like when Gracie sings. I don't know if she loved doing it, but I like when she did it. So um, it is one of those fun little elements of the film. Um, and then uh, after she finishes it, George asks her, Gracie, what, what about your Tur- Turkish accent? And Gracie goes, yeah, well, I've got it on, George. And she puts on her veil. <laughs> so we already know that at least we have this little comfortable alt, uh, uh, sporadic blanket that is Burns and Allen. Um, and then Colonel Downing is tricked. Um, by an officer of the law into a subpoena. They're going to be appearing for a court because they haven't paid their fucking bills. <laughs> so this is a rundown carnival operation. Um, and of Gracie, of course, has the idea. Um, Gracie, of course, has the idea that they're all uh, uh, going to prison until she nevertheless begins to pack up in a hurry anyway. Um, it, and then we get Colonel Downing explaining. We get then... Curl Downing explaining that his daughter Vi, um, who would have been able to bail them out of this, is now in New York making her dreams come true. And we lose the propelment of George and Gracie and enter the bland world of Violet uh, and Larry, um, which um, a bland actor playing a bland named gentleman. Um, oh, my God. I forgot. Uh, I already forgot his name was Larry. Larry. How blank. Larry. Larry. Here's Larry. here's how here's how fun this is going to be. We can sum up the following couple of scenes by cliche alone. So of course Vi can't pay her fucking rent, and of course she thinks well because the landlady has said some nice things about the gentleman across the way that she can sucker him into some money, but she goes through a whole fucking production. She pretends to be assaulted to the point where Larry can hear it in the other room, and then she runs in, a scared. And I'm like, this is some extreme lengths to, to getting your rent paid right there. Is that, that This whole routine, this is a con, and, it's, and obviously it's a con that she learned from her father, because I don't think you're picking that up at random. <laughs> like, you've gotta learn how to avoid debt from the master, which is Colonel Downing. Um, and Larry then kind of, he's, he's, he is pure fucking white bread. He has no conflicts whatsoever. She literally calls him Galahad throughout this whole fucking movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's, 
basically revealed that his only flaw is that he too cannot find a job in New York as a songwriter. And she's trying to make it as like a singer or a chorus girl or something. Um, and the moment she sees a note, a promissory note um, from Larry to the landlady, then she's just like, all right, so long. See you later. Bye. <laughs> later, dude. And then she, she leaves the apartment building. She basically gets kicked out. Larry goes to her rescue and suggests that they go for a bite to eat. And then he thinks, oh, I, then he realizes, oh, no, I don't have any pocket money. And then she's like, well, that's okay, chum. I guess this dollar's on me. So they go to a restaurant to have a dollar's worth of meal or whatever. And then she tries to con the front end man. And Larry stops it by going like, I don't think you gave him the correct amount of change. And you kind of want to turn to Larry and go like, will you shut the fuck up? You're ruining the con. <laughs> yes, because it's like, okay, like, you realize that you just ate the meal at this point in time. Whether you wanted to or not, you have, you have screwed yourself. Indeed. You have screwed yourself into, into not making life easy for yourself. This is the problem. Some sort of it can be at the head of the, of the Hayes code or of the, of the production code, but it really boils down to is like, you're trying to not be offensive with a comedy plot has already put you in hot water because if you do not make these characters interesting to the point of being thieves, I, I do not care. I, I do not care. I care more about Vi than I do Larry. I will point that out. I care about her. Because, um, like, he seems like, I mean, even though he's, like, you definitely should wear, worry about Larry because he obviously is not smart enough to make it work. And, or just too daggone, like, peach pie and honey. Like, I don't know. Like he, he is not he is not interesting enough to play Prince Charming in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And that's a character no. who literally has all of seven words of dialogue in 1937. He is not even interesting enough to be a Disney prince. <laughs> No, well, <laughs> not of this yes. era, but of the previous, the like the far behind era where the princes mean meant jack shit. She called, yeah, she calls him like Sir Galahad, and also I found it funny, like in the uh, he, she also called him Diogenes when she said, like, um, you know, I can't pay for it, which Diogenes was a philosopher that his whole thing was. Be so poor, like, the more, the poorer you are, the more honest you are, and he lived with dogs. So. <laughs> make it so interesting, like they, make him live with fucking dogs. Right. Have this and, be a hotel like, for dogs, literally. But she, it's so funny that, like, Vi is, like, you know, she does defy expectations in the sense that she, she lives in this carnival, and she has very, like, this astute knowledge of like philosophers and like stuff like that. Whereas like he is like super innocent and doesn't have any knowledge whatsoever. Apparently he is less intriguing than Kenny Baker. In I film. would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. He is less interesting than Kenny Baker, an actor who outside of his work with Jack couldn't compel or, a fly off of a piece of cheese you know like or 
Or maybe we've got this guy all wrong. Maybe he's, like, actually, like, just really good at the innocent character. (laughs) (laughs) He's the Daniel Day-Lewis of white bread boys. (laughs) (laughs) He's got it down. I I, I retired from, from being too bland. Um, and so I decided to become bland in real life. That was that's it's my equivalent of making shoes and um, or making dresses after being in Phantom Thread is I just decided to be bland in real life. Got a wife, well, settled down, <laughs> you know. Also, we have this carnival and we don't really like explore it like really at all. No. And are you as upset been, as I am? That could have been a musical plot point. Yeah. But also. What I get upset about, okay, or not upset about, but the things that I have learned about this movie, yeah, was this was filmed in a on a uh, in a city where carnivals within city limits were banned. Whoa, really? Oh, so that's the most yeah. interesting part of this production. I didn't even find that. That that's interesting because this this movie struggles to be interesting that's slightly interesting uh, and also charlie cook was the manager of the barnum and bailey circus and he supervised the carnival scenes what he needed to supervise i don't know because there wasn't a whole lot going on in those carnival scenes hey, hey charlie get over here and help us supervise this production now does this look this 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 tent look okay yeah george it does Okay. Does the uh, does this um, platform that they're gonna stand on look okay? Yeah. All right. You're done. Here's five hundred bucks. <laughs> like, what? This th- th- this film has as much to do with the. <laughs> this film has as much to do with the carnival as Beetlejuice has to do with the actual character of Beetlejuice. <laughs> Like, there's there's maybe a good solid what seventeen minutes worth of this movie that have carnival adjacent imagery like the bus or the actual carnival itself, and then the rest of it is nothing. It's like just like Beetlejuice. Like Beetlejuice is only in that movie for like a small amount of time. Everything else is about Lydia. So I I, I find it shocking that you need a a, a carnival compliance officer on set. <laughs> So since there's so little to talk about with this movie, yeah, what could this ha- movie have been I, if it had been a musical? We could have had a carnival, a carnival num- more carnival numbers. We could have had dancing, like, not that I approve of this because I have seen what they do with the elephants and stuff that are in carnivals, but we could have had, like, animals. We could have had tightrope people. We could have had a whole thing, and we could have had an interesting like working in the music store like thing going on like you need, like a- you need to latch on to one of these two settings it's either the music store or the carnival you can't have both we need one central location for this musical that's that i can guarantee yes i agree but that is not what this movie chose to do no if we're if we're okay so we're going off of the script as it stands with having these two yeah. different elements attached to it. Okay, well, you need to you need to provide better explanation as to why Vi would even remotely consider rejoining this carnival. Um you need to like 
establish that she has some connection with the carnival that's just beyond her brother because it seems like she could even give two fucks about her brother at a certain point um right oh my god that bothered me so much i was like i have no idea that these are brother and sister uh some so it was so bad that at some play some review from like i don't remember if it was imdb or if it was tcm or where i read this but someone had uh, Gracie listed as the sister of Vi, and I was like, "That does, I don't think that's right." And I rewatched the movie; that's not right. No, but so, but someone thought that it was in a not like in not in a um, oh, I'm like just a random reviewer sense, like an actual. I was getting it from like good sources, so I was like, "What." This this film is so jumbled that I forgive that kind of mistake. Like if Bosley Crowther, who I who who I have disaffection towards, listed her as the sister, I'd be like, you know what? Fair enough, Crowther. Fair enough. I can't discern it worth a damn. The only- because you can't tell. You can't tell that they're brother and sister. Mm-hmm. No, you can't until you have the dialogue between them. And I will I will give the movie credit. This movie gives George some more things to do than I think he would normally get because he's usually just an assistant or a, a facilitator to Gracie's madness. And they give him sort of a Zeppo Marx esque role that's adjacent to Gracie for this in here. He does get his whole scene with Dixie Lee and him. And he is, I do appreciate that George in that moment is very, he understands why his sister has left this carnival, but he's also going to try to kind of convince her to come back or at least give them the money. He's like, he's, I like how he's like, he's reserved to being rejected, but he is talking to his sister. Like it's a sister sort of more or less. Um, it's not perfect by any means because George probably doesn't care. (laughs) Even in this, like if, if the line hadn't been, this is my brother, George, and his wife, you know, I would have been like, oh, what? <laughs> and even, even with even with that, when they're talking, like, I don't even feel like it's a sister and brother conversation if I... If I was talking to my sister, there'd be much more like emotion behind it. Like, come on, we gotta get dad out of jail. Like, please, I, like I, we I, can't I, just leave him in there. But but he does say a line later to his dad where he's just like, "Come on, Vi's doing all right. Why 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 drag her back down in with us?" Yeah. So he is kind of like calmly reserved to like, "Look, I'm really here for the money, but I will I'll try a last ditch effort to get you to come back." Um, uh, like and by last ditch I mean last fucking ditch. Like you dig a couple inches of that ditch and you're done. <laughs> like, and that's kind of George as an actor at this point. He's not gonna ch- ch- leap above what the script requires. Is right. there because you could argue there's a bare minimum that that character has to do, and I argue he technically succeeds just by a little bit. Yes. Because I feel like, as we've said, George and Gracie are just kind of placed there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's great 
when they're there, but it's also like they contribute nothing else because they don't they don't know what they want them to be, and so they don't try to be anything other than their vaudeville. Yeah, Gracie. Right. And speaking of them, we're gonna get to them because now. Um, it, uh, Larry promises Vi dinner and she's like, oh, I'll be curious to see how you come up with the money for that one, chum. And then we move over to the George and Gracie um, in the carnival truck and they are racing to try to get to Vi. Uh, George is lamenting that his father is in jail and uh, and that they um, uh, must flee New York to find, uh, flee to New York to find his sister. And as they drive her veil and garb, Gracie's veil and garb whoosh in George's face. And that's very cute. That's very fun. I like that. Um, and then uh, George goes, Gracie, will you go inside and change your clothes? And after you've changed, jump off the bus. And Gracie goes, all right, George. And she gets up and then George slap smacks the or slaps slacks the wheel hard enough that gracie sits back down but i thought it was also that she realizes that that's not what to do <laughs> because i was like giving gracie a little bit of credit going like gracie isn't dumb enough to actually jump off of a bus is she <laughs> as written as the character would she be dumb enough to jump off a bus <laughs> yeah see and this is where I don't necessarily like what they do with the Gracie character in these movies is because I don't feel like in like the radio show and on the TV show that she would be that dumb, but they don't know what to do with her. And so like they really ramp up her crazy zaniness. And so, yeah, I think they would, I, she would. In I, this. Feel, I feel like that this film was what others watched in order to avoid making mistakes. And here comes cookie because she is that dumb and here comes cookie, but there is absolute justification in the script for it. And the reason is, is that the script is built around George and Gracie and not this stupid love plot. Now, I'm not saying it justifies her being dumber than all dirt, but it makes more sense within the Gracie mold by comparison. Um, like it's always like this is a this is part of this discussion is also kind of like figuring out a compromise in our own heads of what Gracie's supposed to be because it's definitely she only gets flashes of it here. Right. It was being decided, I feel like, very much up until Wow. Like that is a question. I have listened to a lot of the Gracie character and there's it just feels like this weird evolution. Yeah. Um, I think that when she becomes married to George, she becomes less zany. And that works for right. the character because she's now, now it becomes about a domestic situation and it has nothing to do with anything other than that. Right. I, I feel like up until that point, they are operating under their vaudeville routine. I like Dizzy Girls because Dizzy Girls get, get all the boys. And, the, and, the, and they're fun. They're fun as characters. Yeah. And they don't, I feel like unlike the impression that people would have of Gracie, there is an intelligence to that performance that if you if you ignored that and looked at it only on the surface, you'd be disingenuous to the performer and to yourself for assuming that. 
Just to clarify, are we at the scene where they are getting pulled over? Uh, no, not yet. First, we have to go through one more bit of boring business, which is, uh, so Larry does find the money to get her dinner. And of course, he pawns his own suit and gets a new suit, a, a, an older suit and a dollar besides. So then they go to have dinner. And then we don't even bother with that dinner scene because somebody in the studio was like, we don't need to have, we don't need to watch them blandly eating again. We're done with that. So they go to uh, they, 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 they talk about like, well, we need to get you a job. And he goes like, oh, say, I happen to remember about an interview that's supposed to happen only at 9 PM tonight at this music store. <laughs> and then, and then they go like, well, let's go over there. And they get into the interview and, um, we, uh, we, we meet the owner of this music store. Um, and it's owned by, uh, hold on one second. I, I had his name written down here. His name uh, in the script is Pop Heinrich. Um, so it's Mr. Heinrich's music store, um, which unlike Mr. Modicek's multi-purpose store, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a pale imitation by comparison. Um, but uh, they go in there, and as they, and as they are um, uh, going in, Mr. Heinrich is already going like, nope, nope, you're not good enough to work in this store. Uh, he already kicks one guy out of an interview, but it's okay because uh, Violet interferes. Vi interferes and says, "Like, no, wait, he knows music, and what if we can do a double audition for you, if you will, or a double interview?" And um, he she convinces him to hear Larry play the piano, and he plays "None But the Lonely Heart." Um, and uh, this is the point where I made a note um, in my book with an asterisk that said, "I'm sorry, but Joe Morrison is just dot 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 dreadful," and then. <laughs> And that had nothing to do with the music. He's a fine singer. The problem is, is that up to this point, I'm looking for some kind of charisma and I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. I, I there is a, um, there is a film out there called the Brighton Strangler starring John Loder, who has been described by myself and various other people in my friend circles. Um, and, um, has certainly been, uh, been, uh, uh, expounded upon to death by the great Attaboy Clarence show. Um, that John Loder can't add a, can't really act his way to, out of a paper bag. I would argue that John Loder is a far more charismatic actor than Joe Morrison any time of the day. Um, and apparently this yeah. blandness is enough to move Pop's heart because he's like, my, my that was my Emily's favorite song. And when I hear it, it's like she has lived again. And I'm like, this moment is not earned at all. <laughs> no. No. It is and I don't even know why, because, like, I know that he's bland, but the, he performs it, like, he performs it well. He doesn't perform it like the most amazing thing, like, I've ever heard. But it's, it's not, it's not, like, it is what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it services this threadbare cheesy story just fine he hires them both uh they get commission he basically says if i make money you make money uh ten dollars a week and a ten percent commission and the ten dollars is between the two of them so it's five a piece essentially so then they go off and 
Vi says she's going to go to her friend's place, and Larry's like, well, I will walk you there. And he, she goes, well, no, no, no. You think I'm going to let my friends see you in that tacky suit? Uh, and then the camera does something that I actually like. The camera bows down to both their la- their feet, um, and we see Violet walking off, we see Larry walking off, and then we see Larry walking toward her, and we really focus yeah. on the feet. It is fun visual language for a rom-com. I wish it was in a different movie. Um, And I'm sure if I were to dig back in my memory, I have seen this kind of shot in another rom-com, even if not from this era, then at least from the last hundred years of cinema. Um, But it is nice. Nugent knows how to do some storytelling techniques with his camera. It's fine. Um, And then they sit at a park. She finds out that he's followed her to the park benches that she's going to lie on. and, um, And then they find out it's raining so that they... They go back to the music store because they've already been given the key to come in the next day. So they go in there, they dry off. Uh, there's some nudity jokes that go absolutely nowhere because there's no interesting part of this movie that has led me to believe this would be funny. And uh, and then she uh, uh, she uh, she is lulled to sleep um, uh, while he plays the piano. But he does this thing where they're talking about his love of music and. Um, they this there is this there's this soliloquy that larry gives that i thought in any other movie would be great which is they all pass they're forgotten but music lives she goes that's a goofy idea and he goes well it's true now you take this old store it's full of music the songs that someone wrote and felt a long time ago people who wrote them are all dead but the songs are still alive and they'll never die and I, I, I'm not a good actor, but I have to imagine I read it better than Joe did in the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, al- but also, like this, this thought is like not exactly new. Like this music speaks to everyone, and this is like it feels real, more real than other things, and the fact, like. The same, this is how I also feel about books and such Mm -hmm. and like writing. And so I'm like, we're acting like this is a new thought. This is a thought that I had when I was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why I wanted to be a writer because I was like, I'm reading books that dead people have written. How cool. I can live through forever through my, through my words. Like, yeah, yeah. There is that eternal nature to show business that we that we presuppose or towards the arts in general, period. And you know what really sucks to my mind for me, I can only speak for myself, is that such a lovely piece of dialogue that could easily sum up the purpose of this show uh, is is wasted on this moment in this movie. <laughs> it, is about the t- it is about the time my eyes glazed over and was like, can we just be done with this scene? Yeah. I just, just want to be done with this All scene. All right, I'll tell you what. We'll wrap up the scene. Um, uh, tell you what. Um, you sleep on top of the piano, and Larry will sleep on the bottom. But before, he's going to sing you to sleep with a song that's called Let Me Sing You to Sleep with a Love Song. Actual That title. should have been the very end of the movie. Why put a lullaby <laughs> in the middle of a movie? I don't know. We're trying to intimate that he loves her and she's starting to oh. like him. And, you know, and who knows? Maybe one day this love will be in bloom. 
I can't even pretend to laugh. I waited. I waited an hour and 33 minutes to tell that joke. Was it worth it? <laughs> Just like so much of this movie. Wasted on this movie. So much is wasted on this movie. Jo- Jack, so Jack's, Jack's ghost is going to come and visit me and go and like, look, I didn't want this as my theme song, but I'll be damned if I'm going to let you ruin the legacy of it as a song and what it means to me with your dumb, dumb joke. <laughs> It really should have kept the title win or lose. It would have made more sense. It's a title that works. It doesn't make much sense to begin with either title, but (laughs) you could literally, you could literally, you could do this and it doesn't matter for the movie. You could have a poster that says win or lose and it has Gracie and she looks like she's the turnstile on a roulette wheel. You could do anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) Does the win or lose thing mean mean that they were planning on the carnival being more of the plot? Like, oh no! <laughs> I mean, it might be that it's like, well, whether this relationship is won or lost, it's been quite a ride or something. <sighs> I don't know. I've been lulled to sleep by "Let Me Sing You to Sleep" with a love song. But to your point, like this is it. The the soliloquy here is is nice. Mm-hmm. It's a nice I thought. See, I can see it working. It, yeah, you could see it working, but did and you I, see it working? Uh, no, no, you did not. And like, I feel like this is a good soliloquy to explain to people that maybe aren't in the arts or don't understand why you do what you do, like to share with them to be like, look, like through our art, we live on. And so I understand, but it's completely wasted on this boring character. Well, don't worry. She lulls off to sleep and then he continues to sing as he lies under the piano. And then we go back to the fucking bus. Woo. Back on the bus, back on the bus, back on the bus. Um, now they're still on the road um, and uh, she's driving 60 miles an hour um, and she and she even says I'll go 90 if necessary if that guy on that bicycle thinks he's going to pass us he's crazy <laughs> which I like that line I thought that was fun um, and it turns out it's actually a motorcycle cop um, she yeah. finally stops the car I don't know what it compels her to actually stop maybe maybe off screen George is like stop it now Gracie like that something like that you I- know I think it was. Uh, it, it made her stop, mm-hmm. and then immediately when she does, uh, she does stop. The cop asks her, um, "Like, well, before- where are you? Like, uh, where are you going, basically?" Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Oh," or like, "Yeah," and she's basically, "See, I told you we shouldn't have stopped, George. He just wants to know where we're going." Yeah, that's which is a fun line. That that is a fun line. Um, yeah. the, the, George gets a funny line in here though. Right after the car stops, the calliope starts stops playing with a wah wah, and the cop goes, "What's that?" And George goes, "That's the finish." <laughs> I I got a good chuckle out of that one. I like if you give George a moment, he'll be fucking funny. <laughs> that's actually really fucking funny to me. Um, but then uh, I I wrote to, I transcribed the routines because it was more interesting than the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, the cop goes, "You certainly uh, led me on a merry chase." And Gracie goes, well, thank you. And a merry chase to you, too. Uh, then we have the cop going, what's your name? Gracie Downing, what's your name? Patrick Mac. 
Wait a minute. Oh, Patrick McWaitaminute, isn't that a pretty name? Uh, how is Mrs. McWaitaminute and all the little McWaita seconds? <laughs> See, this is, this is where you know that Gracie is smarter than she's letting on. Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't make sense unless you actually think about it. Because what he said, wait a minute, not like wait a second. So she, she knows what she's doing. McWaitaminute. And this minute. <laughs> Yeah. This is also this routine and where like he's like writing a ticket for them and then like I'm like and what she does like when George is like Gracie, we we gotta get out of this ticket like and she, she's like, Oh, I've got it, I've got it and she and he, he's like yeah, you've got it, and like, like sarcastically, but she does have it, yeah. and I have to think it's on purpose because y- yeah, y- you're not you're the second person to uh, you're the second person to theorize that all of this is an elaborate scheme by Gracie, were it not for the fact that Gracie is the character we know her to be. <laughs> like John Ekstrom described her as like you almost think this could be a plot <laughs> that Gracie has devised well thought out beyond all brilliant execution possible but it has to be because otherwise it do- the dialogue here doesn't make sense <laughs> if she is if she is that stupid it do- it doesn't make sense to give her some of these lines because if we're going off of the assumption that she actually believes like like the fallacy of it you know then then she'd be following this the wrong way but she's going she's she acknowledges the fallacy and then she swings the other way yeah but but she's so dizzy that you can't keep up with you can't keep up with her so you're still kind of like discombobulated but she knows what she's doing and she thought get out of paying the ticket if you play if you place this in a postmodern like meta world one scene in this movie or any kind of gracie allen movie going forward would have had a scene where she lights a cigarette and is all cool and charming and goes like and that's where you realize it's been a con the whole time like that's that, that's that's what you do to 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 meta contextualize fucking gracie allen in the modern world like have her in oh. the usual suspects or something <laughs> You say that, and like I immediately think of Kevin in the office, where like he plays this dumb, dumb, dumb character, and then, but he has these moments where he like he like he proves that he's not as dumb as he lets on mm-hmm. when it actually matters. Yeah, and like the end, like he owns his own bar. And stuff like that. Like he he was like, hey, I actually caught this accounting error. I'm an accountant. Here we are. Like I actually do know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to pretend like I don't though. So you guys do all the freaking work. <laughs> so, but, like, but that is what she is doing. She's like, I'm just going to like Babylon, Babylon and kind of have everybody fooled. But then like, I actually do know what I'm talking about. So I can. Yeah. And well, and and she has great moments to do that, which with in George in order to keep character, because, uh, to, 
uh, the, the Gracie compels George to kid the officer, which compounds George's predicament. And then the ticket is being written out and George goes, it's not that kind of a ticket you think it is. It's a ticket to traffic court. Gracie goes, oh, what's playing there? George goes, a judge and a jury. And she goes, oh, I've seen that picture. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are great. And then uh, she, <laughs> she does a little thing where I'm just like, well, from the modern context, we see this as a as it's always been, which is a little dig at the police, which is um, uh, she does first. She does a logic loop where she says that them going 60 miles an hour at 30 miles an hour each uh, means they get a ticket. But since the officer went 60 miles an hour on his own, he also deserves a ticket. And um, so it's the one in one combination. And he goes, but I'm a police officer. And she goes, ignorant is no excuse <laughs> which is i i like that as a little like slight dig at police it, i think it's a funny little joke um and then the cop is about to get him to uh, george, george is trying to beat it um but then he asks about the bus so she gives him a show and tell tour around making paper designs um that basically just come out as two circles <laughs> so it's like trying to make those snowflakes when you were a kid but she just gets two circles which is pretty much what happened to me when i tried to make those fucking snowflakes and she unwittingly or wittingly based off of our little theory back and forth here hand uh, uh hands him the summons and he starts tearing it up. Um, and, uh, she, <laughs> he says, say, what is this? A conspiracy? And she goes, no, it's confetti. Bye. So in order to pull away that fast though, like George had to have known that it was the ticket that she's doing. She's given to him to pull up, to get rid of. And, and there's no scene like, to suggest otherwise. So, right. Yeah. There has they have to know that the he has to know that what she gave him to tear up was the mm -hmm. ticket. Yes. And so they on some level he also acknowledges that she also is taking care of it. You know what? Your theory gets better and better the more I'm hearing it because I do, I genuinely think now that maybe Gracie's, this might be Gracie's most intelligent role to date. <laughs> like, they've had to have done something similar before. Yeah. And, and like, she has to be aware of what she's doing. Yeah. And she has and keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen listening here, if you think like you guys are thinking too much about it, well, here's the thing. This movie is the movie that was made. And so this conversation we're having is infinitely more interesting than the movie as it's about to keep unfolding because we go back to Vi and Larry's love story oh, God, yeah. and they're they're working at the music store they're making money they do have an interaction though with a benny player a jack benny player by the name of benny baker um and uh he was a player on jack's program i remember him most specifically as um uh, a uh a the man who carried the truck that carried the gas that filled the tank of harry richmond's plane Mr. Samuel T. Bushvana <laughs> um, in the first episode where Phil Harris debuted. So, mm. so we get a little bit of him. And he actually, I think he also plays Buckingham Benny in that 36-37 run of the Buck Benny sketches when he wants him to stop saying Buck Benny because his name is Buckingham and it confuses everybody um, between the radio character and this 
uh, uh, interior decorator from Pomona. Um, but we get him basically being sold an antique radio as if it's a collector's item and they get 50 bucks out of him. And that's like a, that's the most interesting, that's the most interesting thing that happens in this music store period is that they con Benny Baker. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was a weird, (laughs) a weird aside. It's It has, but it has right. It has less merit being part of this than a random ass carnival. You're right. You're right. And it's like, what? Like, is this to indicate that, like, they sold, like, such a, an exorbitant amount that they get, like, a bump in salary so that they get to try to marry each other like to, to win it, to get enough money to get into an apartment and get married is is kind of the slight goal even though vi is still unsure because she thinks she's not good enough for bland boy and so she has to get the advice of pop being like pop should i marry this bland boy i don't know if i'm good enough for him and heinrich goes well i i don't know if you like white bread you go for it girl and <laughs> Basically. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's what happens. Um, because he, she has, uh, she has enlisted Pop to go get his trunk of uh, stuff that was taken by the landlady in the place that they used to live. He's uh, Larry's doing the same thing. But as we're waiting for Larry to return, um, we, um, we, she, we see that Vi has found happiness. She's in love. She's going to be able to put her life behind her, and then she starts hearing a calliope of madness playing, and then you hear internally, oh, fuck, because <laughs> George and Gracie yeah. enter, um, and um, George uh, goes like, we've been looking for you for over a week. Where have you been? And Vi goes, oh, I've been all over. And Gracie goes, well, it's certainly funny because that's exactly where we looked. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I, I do. I have to laugh at everything Gracie says in here because it's infinitely better than all the other words put together in the people's mouths in this movie. I, yeah. Yeah. Then the part where she starts to try. (laughs) To try and sell Pop his own store. (laughs) She starts off with Pop going, how do you do? I'm very glad to know you. And Gracie goes, oh, and I'm very glad to know you because any friend of mine is a friend of yours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And like you can tell I feel like she is just having fun with the, all of this. But like you would assume she would stop when Pop is like splayed out on his desk like <laughs> you assume <laughs> You you expect too much. You oh, expect no, restraint. <laughs> no. This lady started a college <laughs> five years later, four years later, <laughs> or found fa- or or led a college. Sorry, not started a college. No, like <laughs> the way that Gracie is dealt with is so crazy because like. She had to have been smart enough to get out of this ticket. Mm-hmm. Like, I am convinced that she knew what she was doing. But for the rest of the movie, that doesn't seem to be the case. I'd argue that she tries again. 
because after the scene where George confronts Vi and goes like, yeah, look, give us the money. Please just help out the old man. And she's just like, fucking fine. Here's the money. Don't, uh, don't, uh, just stay out of my life. George um, says, well, lots of luck. We'll be seeing you. Vi goes, you better not. And George goes, oh, sure. I get it. You're all washed up. And Vi goes, and shampooed. And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. And then. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is, which, you know, kind of funny. Okay. Um, and then I was uh, like, okay, Serpwit, I can see how these two are related. Like, yeah, yeah, they're both sardonic assholes. And then, <laughs> uh, and then he, George goes to grab Gracie, and George goes, "Well, goodbye, Mr. Heinrich." Gracie goes, "Goodbye." I'll say it's a goodbye. It'll be an even, it'll be an even better buy with fifteen thousand dollars because she has worked him witlessly into a ten thousand dollar sale for his own store, and then she thinks it's gonna make an even bigger buy at fifteen thousand dollars. Um and so George tries, but Gracie keeps brushing him off. And then Gracie rings up a sale before being called away by George. So she she gets along enough in her possible con to the point where she just finally has to give it up. Um and then she sees um Larry walking in and she goes, my, isn't he pretty, George? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, the Paramount really wanted Joe Morrison to work out as a leading man, didn't they? <laughs> That's I a- really think so. Did she take any money from the register at that point where every- when everybody was looking? I didn't see any. But I didn't see any either, but that's like the only reason why I can think of that that would actually um mm-hmm. because like he's not that pretty. Yeah, he's he's fine. I have no idea about him, man. Like I can understand why they thought because like you look at like singers like Sinatra and from that you know, like Sinatra had he he was he did look nice, but he also like he kind of looks like this strange like gangly kid from Hoboken. You know, like yeah, he's but he's got that um um I guess that the that appeal point is like oh he's so sickly I want to nurture and take care of him or something like that or but l- my point is that like. Girls go gaga for singers, mm-hmm. and they thought, "Well, he sings. We'll try it." <laughs> Congratulations, kid! You've made the bare minimum. Welcome to Paramount. <laughs> Won't work that way ever again. I can assure you of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because, and then after this, like Larry comes in and. Uh, you know, he's got her suitcase and um, goes back in and sees her crying and uh, says that um, uh, she can't get married because she gave the money away and he isn't worried about it. And um, she's like, maybe we can get married next week. Maybe my uh, maybe uh, maybe my songs will make some money because he's sending around his songs. I've got four different songs out now with four different publishers. Um, and then she says she loves him and um or uh, she loves him, and she says, "That's the first time I've said that to anyone in my life, ya egg." And then they embrace. Um, and then we get uh, this next scene of Larry uh, playing while Vi freshens up. Um, and then there's a guy coming over to buy music, and he goes, "Say, what's that song?" And um, the song that's uh, uh, being played is uh, 
Uh, oh God. Um, my heart is an open book. book. That's right. My heart is an open it's book. An open book. <laughs> See, this, is, this, this is why I think that they were trying to make money off of the sale of music and like sheet music and all this. I think they were hoping for that kind of movie. But they didn't act like it was a musical, you know, and so it wasn't a musical. You know what? They should have followed Pop Heinrich's advice. Don't count your royalties until they're hitched. Don't count your royalties unless they're hatched. A line that is so telling about Paramount's hubris that Pop Heinrich has to say it out loud in the movie for this character, little realizing that it's applicable to the entire production. Um, and Or all of Paramount. Yeah, period. Hands down. And then they head off to go get married, and Larry whistles for her to leave with him. Um, and then the happy ending depends on you is the end of that little line there. Um, and the next scene is George Gracie and the Colonel riding in the bus because now that he's been freed from prison and the carnival is saved, he wants to get his daughter back. And uh, George pleads with her to let Vi live her life. And the Colonel goes, I'll teach her a little family affection. And I'm like, ew. Yeah. Yeah. He says the line, you don't understand what a father's love means. And I went, shut up. Oh, no, he goes, shut up, and then I went, shut up, you. And then Gracie says, yeah, George, why don't you shut up? And I was like, that's funny. <laughs> so I went from like, fuck you, this character, and then Gracie says something, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm back in the movie for a second. <laughs> but see, like, I feel like that is unfair to George. <laughs> so unfair to George, <laughs> because it's like, George is being reasonable and actually, like, we have this very despicable father figure, and then we have George pointing out how despicable it is, and Grace just goes, shut up, George. It's, it's like, it, the, no. the, her, her dizziness switches her from adorable to, to like, like, uncharacteristically rude. Now, she's done this before in routines, but yeah. it's not like this. It's not like this. Because you, it's, we're not believing the insanity because the movie's not giving us a reason to believe in the insanity. That's, that's a, it's a major issue. Um, and we get a montage of the couple singing My Heart is an Open Book with a montage of getting a ring, finding an apartment, getting back to the store before the wedding, and then Vi sees her dad's at the store, and she goes, oh, shit. Uh, and then the, she sends uh, sends Larry to the church. The colonel and Vi chat, um, and the colonel forgives her and allows her to come back to the carnival. And she tells him no and goes through all the crimes that she had put her through, including putting me on as a come-on for suckers, which... Sounds like the impetus for the character in the film Babyface, which means ew, 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 ew. So if if your theory at the top isn't correct, at the very least, he's more or less shelling out his daughter for suckers, which is really fucking unnerving for a character that's supposed to be a wackadoo drunk. Like at best, yeah, this he, at best this character should be too silly for his own good. Not this intense. No, he's definitely a drunk. He seems very drunk when he's talking to 
And, like, even he just got out of jail, and he seems drunk out of his mind. Um, now, granted, J.C. Nugent is fine in the performance. The, his performance is not the problem. The problem is yeah. the script. Right. Yeah, he plays a good and, drunk. He actually plays a really uh, good drunk. <laughs> well, I would like to point out, though, like, that the people that wrote this script, like, I like the main person, like, is actually was a respected writer Mm -hmm. for like like for print and like journalism and stuff and like had a couple of stories and stuff so he was a respected writer i just don't think he was very successful with screenwriting well you had a couple of credited we had a couple of credited writers on this jp mcavoy um who wrote for liberty in the saturday evening post um, and then you also have John P. Medbury and you have Keen Thompson. Uh, Keen Thompson uh, worked through all out through silent films and up into 1945. He wrote um, he's one of the writers on Artists and Models from 1937 starring Jack. So um, and he worked with Burns and Allen before with Six of a Kind, Many Happy Returns. So he's familiar with their material. So maybe maybe Keen Thompson is more responsible for. Uh, the Burns and Allen material than anything else. So, um, because it seems like he's the one who understands comedy the best. Um, and, uh, and he actually, yeah. uh, 1937, when he completed the script for Jack's film, Artists and Models, is when he died of low bar pneumonia. So, R.I.P. Yeah. Keen Thompson. Um, you, you were the maybe the only part of this film that actually worked. Um, and then, um, Vi, um, uh, the next the next scene has uh, she, she wants to get the carnival out of her blood, first of all. But she so Vi finishes up with her father. She goes, she wants to get the carnival out of her blood, but he keeps insisting that she'll never change. She runs off crying. The colonel finds out. And then we get to uh, the, the colonel finds out then about the truck. She runs off crying and then. The colonel finds out where the church of the wedding is going to be. They go to the church for the wedding. Larry runs into someone he knew in his old hometown randomly, and she's getting married, and she's basically a stand-in for the perfect housewife, and Vi is promising a wonder bread happily that she'll never, ever be that that carnival folk again. She'll be an upright wife. And she even starts... I actually thought this was a fun little touch that goes nowhere but you see the vi character rehearsing the lines and the delivery of how to be a perfect wife and i thought that's that's interesting that's an interesting little touch to the character but it doesn't matter <laughs> you know like anytime the film tries for something it's the problem is is that the rest of the movie exists um and then the colonel st- stops the wedding by drunkenly denouncing the wrong marriage. Um, and uh, and I wrote a note that the colonel would be hilarious in this scene if it was not revealed that he was an absolute abusive ass prior. Like, if that, if that content had changed in the scene prior, this would have played funnier. It just plays as sad at this point. Because she then leaves and goes like, I'm going back to the carnival. I'm not good enough for you. And, um, and so we get... Scenes to the uh, scenes on the bus, scene on the bus, cutting to Larry walking in dejection into the music store, and the music publisher um, uh, has sent a letter to Larry, and he dejectedly opens it, and basically his uh, song "My Heart Is an Open Book" has been accepted, but of course he's not happy, and he just walks out. 
Um, and then the next scene is a montage of the sh- of the music. My heart is an open book. Um, being so successful that copies of it encompass the earth, which <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't like the impression that this song has somehow dominated our human existence. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. But this is where I get the sense that this was meant to be a musical because musicals are filled with these kinds of like montages as such. And so I was like, this, this, this is what the movie should have done all along mm-hmm. is put like little montages in of like imaginations of uh, like the just less less crying and dramatics more and like loves like doughy eyed like they, I don't even take, know take, like, take a tip from the two people who should theoretically be stars in this movie be insane get crazy make this irreverent because it's not the 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 the, the love trope doesn't work do you know why hairspray works as a musical it's not because of the love plot <laughs> that is a supplement i have a question for you yeah do you think do you think since it was reported that Bing Crosby was supposed to be in this movie, do you think at some point they hoped to put the couple together? It would not surprise me given how Hollywood tries to work. If they can and see a buck, they'll see a buck. That, and that is why they put the title the way they did. And it also would explain so much of this script because if Bing Crosby was doing this, I could see a lot of this being pulled off. Yeah. Blood dialogue. It was meant for Bing Crosby, not for him. He, he, Larry, as played by Joe Morrison comes off as too much of a Boy Scout. But if you stuck this dialogue into Bing, I could see it happening. I could. Yes. Especially early Bing. I could see that happening. Absolutely. Because he's a relatable everyman. Yes. 1935 Bing, I can see this happening for. Yeah. You know, like, it, 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 it plays even to his good guy Galahad role of the character that if Bing pulled that off, it would come off as kind of a lackadaisical charm, but it would have charm. You can insert charm into it. Would the movie be like an Oscar-worthy performance? No. And the story would certainly still not get a script nomination, but it would be watchable, and it would explain why George and Gracie are side players, because they had been side players for for Bing before. So that's, that, that would make infinitely more sense. But instead... Bing at some point is pulled away from this and Dixie Lee is still cast, but like, cause maybe there was an attempt, but the problem is that Joe Morrison was hired on way before Dixie Lee signed on. So maybe there was a try, but then Bing says, uh, no, I'm out, but Dixie still wants to try coming out of retirement. So she signs on to it. 
It's the the problem is the timeline. I but I want to believe you're right because it would ma- it makes the most sense. I have to believe that what happened was the scriptwriters wrote it originally for Bing, and then they couldn't because he's so bland. They couldn't find a way to change it because they didn't have anything to latch on to to know how to change it to him. So they just kept it as if Bing was saying it. Right. Yeah. They just kind of they just kept things and lazily sucked everything else into the fire. Um, then we 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 get the montage. This montage, by the way, is fucking nuts because this it's encompassed the entire globe. We get every nationality of every corner of the world performing this song, um, uh, including an offensive Chinese representation of it, too. Um, and um, certainly a stereotypical Spanish version of it. And then there's even a British orchestral arrangement of it. And uh, the scene lands on Vi. Uh, in her dressing room, singing the song itself. And I, I put down in here in my notes a little emoji, sad, teary face. Um, and uh, George comes in uh, with uh, uh, dancing slippers, and George brings up Larry and how she hasn't answered any of his letters. She thinks he's better off, and she kept the letters, though, wrapped around in a ribbon. So she's not really convincing George that much that she's over him. Uh, and then we get this dinner scene, which we get a little bit more George and Gracie. Um, Gracie starts um, a wiping off food. We're using the... Uh, the uh, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. She talked about... George talks about putting the the napkin around the bearded lady and she puts it uh she, put, she puts it under because if i had if i could put it over the beard then she would spill things on it fair <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> it's not a particularly fun line from gracie it's like oh and then it, then it elaborates into um doesn't it elaborate into like she can grow back another beard, but you can't grow another napkin? The line specifically is you can you can always raise another beard, but you can't grow another a good napkin. <laughs> See, if they yeah. tried more harder at jokes surrounding the carnival, the other the only issue we'd be talking about is how offensive George and Gracie are to carnival performers. <laughs> like you'd be you're basically in order to make this movie watchable, you have to combine the movie Freaks with parts of this script, and then, then you would get a movie. But then then you run into an entirely different category of, okay, this is offensive on so many other grounds. We've got to talk about them one by one, bit by bit, minute by minute. Um, so I guess, thankfully, they don't do that, but at the same time, might be a more interesting movie by comparison. Um, then Vi comes in for dinner and the colonel enters and makes an announcement that he has taken on a partner. And Gracie says, we'll cut the partners. George cut the, uh, well, um, uh, we'll cut the partners. George cut the cards. <laughs> so, okay, um, fair enough. And then he announces that the tour will go off uh, far west uh, and into Canada for two years at full salary. Um, and then the colonel uh, Relatively. Yeah. And then the the family thinks he's drunk, which would make the most sense. Um, and the colonel says yeah. she won't be taking Vi, he won't be taking Vi, and he leads her off. And then we get the last George and Gracie bit where Gracie starts giggling. George goes, what's the matter? Gracie goes, oh, Vi isn't going with us. Tee-hee. 
We may not see her anymore. <laughs> and George goes, well, that's nothing to laugh about. You ought to feel bad. Oh, I do. I feel awful. I can't, I can't bear to see Vi go. George goes, well, then why are you laughing? And Gracie goes, because if I cry, the mascara will get in my eyes. And then, ooh, there it goes. <laughs> so it's, yeah, a weak, that was, it's, it's a weak exit for Gracie. <laughs> that was strange. Yeah. Yeah. Gracie hasn't cared about her appearance up to this point. She literally thought the veil, uh, the, the veil was her Turkish accent. So it's funny, but it's not funny in the context of the story by any stretch. And, and that might sound hypocritical. Like, but Zach, this, the, these movies were made around these routines being as random and wacky because they just wanted to showcase Burns and Allen. It's like, yeah, but some of them attach themselves to the plot pretty damn well. And this doesn't do it. <laughs> um, in fact, there's better gags in this movie surrounding her trying to sell somebody their own store or getting out of a traffic ticket than this line. Um, so yeah. Yeah. This one, this particular like aside, I don't even know why it's, it's there. Yeah. And the Colonel then goes to, um, uh, hey, apparently he has made amends by saying, I'm giving you, ver I'm giving Vi her freedom. And now the partner has promised to look after her. And then she turns, um, and hears Larry singing and she goes out there and she sees that Larry is out in a car and it's, Oh yeah. Larry has taken on the partnership of the act. Um, so that, Vi can have her freedom. And then they drive off in the last line of the song, the happy ending depends on you. They kiss the end, a paramount picture. <sighs> yeah. I couldn't find any <laughs> like er of the error reviews for this film. I, I also looked, I couldn't find anything. Maybe either. nobody wanted to talk about it. After, after it was done, <laughs> I don't think anybody did. No, it's kind of there. Variety articles on this film dip pretty much the moment it's released, and it's all about numbers that it's pulling in. It must have been enough to justify continuing on with George and Gracie, at least for Here Comes Cookie, because they did it. Because if this movie wasn't a success, maybe Paramount would have considered dropping their contract. Maybe. I don't know. I think they saw this movie for what it was is a gigantic mistake that should never have happened. So that comes to a question. And one of the reasons why I'm actually glad we talked about this film in spite of the blandness that we unfolded, I got the feeling when rewatching the film and even when we were talking about doing it, that this is a good example of what happens when studios try to shove a bunch of elements in for no reason. And I feel mm -hmm. like the obvious example to this from a modern perspective is how DC botched their universe of films the first go around. Because they had a Batman v Superman movie and then they just stuck in every Justice League character they could possibly get their hands on for cameos and they didn't earn it. And I'm not saying that this is in the same wheelhouse because obviously there's a there's a few key differences in the argument. But the bottom line is, is that it is a studio adding elements that don't fucking matter to the story. Burns and Allen don't matter to this story. They're better serviced in literally anything else you can come up with, but not this story without charismatic actors in the other plot line. Right. And like, 
I think Kathy has said this before in other like uh, Jack Benny conventions is that or maybe it's just when I've talked with her. I don't really recall, but she has said that like the movie studios were really over eager to get these radio performers in because they were drawing money and they were drawing crowds and they didn't want to be left out because people could listen to the radios in their homes and they didn't have to go to the theater. But also, like, they weren't sure what to do with them because they also treated them like how TV was treated at, like, uh, when that came onto the scene and it's like a lesser medium, so... But so like the only the only pushback that I could even remotely offer is that I I always got the sense and I could be wrong that Burns and Allen were a hit on the radio, but I don't know if it was the same as maybe Jack's situation because they kept sca- scrambling along in radio like people loved hearing them, but it seemed it feels like the novelty wore off and they kept revitalizing it with other elements and at one point literally the vote for gracie thing became a thing so like or gracie's missing brother that was another thing that carried as a through line so that it i feel like they they found a a dual success both on radio and film but then how much do you stretch a vaudeville act and it's clear that they don't work on their own the same way like I've never seen Gracie's solo films where she doesn't have George in them, but like Mr. and Mrs. North or um, the Gracie Allen murder case, one one of which I know I can't find because I've tried, but um, but I have to imagine that on the whole, George and Gracie don't work well if they're apart in this time. George works better alone after Gracie's gone and after he's found a second wind under different auspices. Yeah, it takes him quite a while. But at this point, he's still stuck in the mold of this is my wife and this is our act. Yes. And like, but I guess what I mean is like more of the sense like this is a cheap, this is like a, this is a gimmick for them, Mm -hmm. for the, for the industry. And they aren't really sure how to treat the star mm-hmm. power. They have no idea how to insert it. There's people that have ideas, some more successful than others, on how they actually execute. You're right. You are right on that. You yes. You can see that with all of the different like radio cameos and stuff that they have on it's just like it's very hit or miss whether it's effective and i think it it, i think what it really comes down to is script and the way that the script writer is how confident they are in their script because if they're not confident in their script they're gonna let all of these other like things come into mm-hmm. the script and they're going to let it be like, okay, let's just try everything. And yeah. And you're right. I should say you're absolutely right on all counts. 
I, the only pushback I had was I wonder because I'm not sure about how popular George and Gracie were on radio, especially at this point by comparison to where they would be in the 40s. I'm not a Burns and Allen radio expert. They, they were still on the charts, I believe. Okay. So they were still pretty high up on the charts. I know George says they were slipping, but I don't, I don't necessarily see that as much as. I feel like it that's felt. I feel like that's revisionist history, kind of like how Groucho said, like our only good pictures were Night at the Opera and Day at the Races because those are the ones where they made money. It could yeah. it could be revisionist history tied into monetary success versus exposure success or popularity success. Um I f- I feel like it probably felt in a sense cuz I feel like George understood who he was more after after a certain point because i feel like at this point he is very comfortable with oh you want to use us in this movie well what are you offering me and not like not necessarily like do you fit but like do you think we fit okay we'll we'll go in there is there a check yeah no yeah because at this point, it just seems to be about the check because he doesn't know why, like, what, what, like, what's a good fit for him. He's just kind of letting others guide him and he doesn't have a clear sense of who he is and who the act, what the act is anymore. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I think this is like one of those elements that we look at throughout history where somebody is good at one thing, but then they start switching into another thing because they've lost the energy that once propelled them. And I have a feeling that their film career, with some exceptions in between, like Here Comes Cookie and even College Swing, I think it, there's a certain point where they're having that identity crisis, like you said. Because if they didn't, then they wouldn't come to the point that they did, which is, all right, we're mainly a radio act, and what's more, we're now husband and wife on the radio. We're no longer, you know, just straight man and comic uh, comedian. You know, this 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 kind of shows a really strange dead period. And it is also kind of like, you know, this show doesn't talk a lot about in the in-betweens of Golden Age Hollywood a lot. We've dealt with a lot of classics or films with notoriety or in the case of a lot of these radio comedians, it's been talking about how the popularity of the radio transcribed into film success more often than not. It certainly was the case with Jack because... As has been said before, despite the way he would make fun of his films, he he made a lot of his films did make a lot of money. And Kathy has pointed that out in, in stride. But I feel like there's a value in talking about a film like this from the perspective that the golden age of Hollywood has such a sheen around it. And anytime we can get a chance to peel the curtain back on that sheen, we should, because rightfully so, any era of film has misses for every hit that it has. In fact, for every hit, you've got probably five misses. And you can see why this film is a miss. There's nothing there's nothing working in the script because it's literally decided to become a hodgepodge. I tell this to people who I am working with uh, that who, when they're asking for my advice on like marketing and stuff, I tell them we don't want to do everything. We want to 
Because if you try to do everything, you end up with nothing. If you try to pull in every which direction, you end up with nothing because mm-hmm. you're being in way too many directions. It has no clear sense of direction. And so it's nothing. People don't pay attention. Yeah. There's a, you, you mentioned a word in there that I think is very important, which is marketing. Um, I was watching a, a, a documentary again about the Warner Brothers um, and they had Shirley Lansing, who was the former, former uh, one of the former presidents over at Paramount. And she's, she talked about like how back then movies cared and now it seems like movies are more about what is marketable and the marketing of a movie. That seems like that statement always seems naive to me because I want to, you want to look back and go like, no, a majority of the output is determined by some form of market research. The difference is, is that it's not corporately guided. It's guided by, studio heads who founded these studios from the ground up and they're working off of marketability and what's hot and what's not based off of show business savvy and an artistic streak but but they're not doing like test audiences the way a market research group will do today it's a different it was a different there's differences between the 80s corporate conglomerate that swallows up the movie industry versus the golden age Hollywood way of doing things. Cause they would still test films, but it's not, there's, there's oddly right. enough, there is still some consideration for the artist at times. At times. It, yeah. It was, I mean, film was, I mean, it's not, it wasn't like crazy new, but it was still not like, it isn't as old as it is now. And especially with the, these radio players coming in, like that was new mm-hmm. for them. So I, I feel like I've read one of George's biographies that says like, granted this was pertaining to television, but I have to imagine that it was somewhat true for their movie roles as well. Nobody really knew what the value of these um, radio players really were. So people, um, were de- demanding certain things. And this was more true for television because it was completely new. Um, but with radio, I have to imagine that there was some, some of this going on where they don't understand how, how much they should be valued or not valued at. And so it makes it hard to determine like the, like, I, I don't think you can ever really be great at marketing and per se with with uh, ho- with Hollywood because you hear of all of those, like all of the good TV shows of that have gone on. They always say that, like, this became a classic and they tried to cancel us in the first season. And like, that's like happens all the time right and so like the market research for a lot of this kind of really means nothing um i think what wins out in the end is why they're doing it yeah i'm a big believer in the why what is our message is that clear and like 
is this a why that people can get behind? Because if you're if it's a why just to make money in a quick book, we can all see where that um, where that sometimes goes. Yeah. Well, and and you you you're you're trending into the reality of this film, which is that I think there's twofold to this. Is number one, we're trying to make this product that we've bought off of a writer palatable. And we've got access to George and Gracie for two pictures. Maybe it might have been a situation where they didn't have another film ready for them. So let's stick them in here as part of their fulfillment. I don't know. But what I do know is, but what's interesting about that is that they then come up with Here Comes Cookie, which is a, which is a superior film. And I feel like it's like a stopgap for like, all right, we've got you under contract. Let's use you. But the only thing that, that that takes it away from me from that is that like in doing research on Jack's film career, you find out like MGM hired him and then gave him nothing to do after Hollywood review of 1929 and chasing rainbows. They just had him lollygagging around the studio. He'd come in and do bit parts, whether for one reelers, uh, like the short, short one or two reelers, or they would have him come in and do uncredited, radio or mc announcing stuff uh in in these films and then he that's and then and after being unutilized for a certain point he then signs up with tiffany pictures to do medicine man because he's looking for something to do but so it's strange that paramount has a hot commodity like burns and allen and they they do the thing that they should have done with Jack to some degree, but they didn't realize, oh, but we've got a valuable film commodity that we actually know how to do. But why are we doing it? I it, the, the only thing that I can think of is that like, oh shit, we brought this property. It's really not that good. And not all the stars are lining up for Bing Crosby to be in it. So let's save it by sticking George and Gracie in here. This is a, this is a Band-Aid movie. This movie is is only salvaged by a band-aid and it's but it's a band-aid that's literally ripping apart. And I'm not going to lie, I feel like that's the majority of the output in superhero films that aren't Marvel um that aren't so essentially Marvel because you can't make the Morbius movie good with the band-aid of Michael Keaton at the end. You can't. Uh, you can't do it. Yes. I don't care. Uh how much Sony thinks they can, they can't do it. They're literally pulling off a micro version of what this entire movie is basically trying to do, which is just to have a Band-Aid of Burns and Allen and be done with it. And, um, and or even every time DC puts a cameo in, or frankly, when anybody tries to do any type of film that is lesser than the sum of its parts, so we'll just add in a, a, a fun celebrity cameo and the internet will be all abuzz about it for like five minutes. But it's like, yeah, but that gets you, what, a week at most of exposure? And you don't even have the benefit of the internet back here then. you And instead, you have Burns and Allen cavorting throughout an entire movie that has people anxiously in their seats waiting for the next time they're on screen. Regardless of how this movie treats Gracie, this film doesn't have any watchability without them in the movie. Or at least any interest yeah. in watchability or rewatchability for that matter. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've we've gone through the rabbit hole more more than we can count on it, but so but hope having said the things that we've all been saying, as a Burns and Allen fan, would you would you recommend anybody check this out just for curiosity's sake? I can't say for a good time, but <laughs> I would say Have, have your remote ready and fast forward through everything else. <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> it is. Just hit the highlights. Hit the highlights. It is not worth the time, really, except for Burns and Allen. And they are not on screen very much and I don't think you necessarily need to know all the background for a majority of this movie to enjoy the scenes mm -hmm. no you don't so because they are completely liftable yeah um I will say that I feel like this movie does have a benefit for for watching is that if you want to watch, if you need an example of how th there's always this phrase of just like, you know, like, like Hollywood doesn't interested in making good stories or anything happen. It's like, well, this has always been the case. Like none of, none of the stuff of like failing IP or sinker movies that don't work at the box office or mishmash productions um, th there's, there's a history behind it because films have always been imperfect, regardless of the, the classics that we have, it's filled with plenty of clunkers. And I do think it's valuable to watch a clunker in action rather than just hearing about it because it teaches you nothing. If you don't watch the clunker in action, you can, it's, it's, it's the opposite of the Maxwell. You need to see would, this clunker in action. <laughs> I would... If you must see it, <laughs> I would have it on in the background. And you don't necessarily need to see all of it. No. Just, just hear, just hear dialogue too. Like if you're just you cleaning can, your room or whatever, like you can audibly hear the inconsistency. It's so weird in a weird way. Like I'm, I know I'm saying, see the film because I think you should see it, but yes, you're right. You can literally hear this audibly and you can hear the inconsistency in the, in the audio alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, I will give it that I've, I have seen worsely shot films and mm -hmm. I've seen, I have seen in this era of Hollywood, I have seen editing that has been so daggone jarring, but that is not the case here. Mm. It is as a film. It is most, it is mostly sh like the directing, the um, editing. It seems to be okay. Um, the it's, it's more or less just the acting and the script. Mm hmm. It's 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 filled with it's filled with inconsistencies in two places where you don't want inconsistencies. And you certainly don't want sporadic tone changes throughout the movie because you can change the tone. 
Contrary to others that I am familiar with, I feel like the inconsistencies in tone in His Girl Friday are are more than acceptable. I understand that that's not for oh, everybody, okay. but knowing yeah. that I'm a fan of it, I can say that I I I work with the ebb and flow. With this film, no, it's like it's it's literally night and day, quite literally. Um, Do you in His Girl Friday that the the Ebb, the the disc the the tone being different in the sense of like we have the comedy and then the serious backdrop of them co- covering this murder. Yes, yes, I am talking about that because there is there is moments where that tone seems to shift up and down at points. Now it's not as jarring as the front page, which is the movie that they made before it, because that's based on the Broadway show. But there are there is a slight shift. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you could attribute that to the golden age Hollywood mentality of like, well, we can kind of shift around a little bit because we're giving everybody every little thing we can. Um, Or like, but you need to have it work. Yeah, it works. You need to have a flow that justifies it, whether it works for you or not is entirely up to you. I mean, Casablanca is a funny fucking movie. It's also a serious fucking movie. And it found its blend pretty damn perfectly. Thanks to writers who were strong in certain elements. And thankfully, they didn't have to deal with a radio personality coming into to Casablanca. But... Oh, you know, Jack Benny in the shadows. Oh, well, well, but yeah, but you see, we, we haven't confirmed it. There's no confirmation whatsoever. Wait, wait, wasn't he like literally, though, in like a... He's supposed to be a waiter. I think. Yeah. He's supposed to be a waiter. Uh, Joan herself tried to find it, never found it. Um, and Roger Ebert even once said it could be him. Yeah. <laughs> like a blanket, like going like, I'm not going to dash your hopes, but I'm also not going to be fucking firm with my answer. <laughs> like, you know, um, I I've looked for Jack in that film and it's hard to tell. Like it's, yeah. it could literally, he could literally be a fucking chame- chameleon on the wall for all I know. Like that's, that's how scant of proof you have. Um, yeah. but on that note, this, what this was this movie was not that it did not have the proper tone shift. Yeah, it it's not it. You can't go into the melodrama you're going into, uh, with this with Burns and Allen as a team. It it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, you know what did work though? This conversation because we've talked about how movies don't work. And I want to thank you, Hope, for coming on board to talk about a lesser Burns and Allen film with me. <laughs> Wait, before we go, might want to put like a little disclaimer at the front to say that we are going to say that this movie is boring, but we urge you to still listen to why. <laughs> I have a feeling our begrudgment will sell it. This is the hate episode. This is everybody, right, everybody right, on the internet loves hate, hate and rage. <laughs> I, I can just imagine a listener going into like they hate the movie. Why am I listening to the <laughs> whole episode su- of yeah, the movie is not You know, there there are plenty there are plenty of podcasts out there about bad movies. Um, but they've never covered a movie as bad as this. I can guarantee it. I don't know. I feel like there are some out there. Um, there's, I think you're forgetting that there's a whole like 
people don't cover, like you said, people don't cover this kind of movie a lot, but there were a lot of clunkers out there at this time because they were just like, yeah, let's throw everything at the wall. We just have all these contract players. We're just going to throw the things at them. And so there were a lot of, lot, a lot of clunkers, um, a lot of B movies, a lot of C movies, a lot of movies that just shouldn't have been made at all. I see what you're saying, but it, at least it was fun to talk about a good, uh, a, a bad film with a good friend. I'll leave it on that note. Yeah. Thank you for getting, yeah. <laughs> thank you again for coming on the show. Hope, uh, really quickly, uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, I know we've got an event coming up. Oh yes. The international Jack Benny fan club is having the Jack Benny convention yeah. in February. And I am terrible cause I'm spacing on the dates, but I know it's the weekend after the 12th. Yes. Uh, which would make it, I'm terrible at math I'm, and it's late. Um, <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll firm up the dates because I, I have, yeah. some, uh, there's some guests to announce here coming up that, um, that'll be, um, coming up on the Ballyhoo that will be relevant to the discussion, but oh, that's, uh, I, I'm so excited for the guests. Yeah. But thank you again, hope. And, um, and we'll have you back on for college swing and we'll do some other stuff. So, um, we, yeah. I'm still waiting for Daddy Long Legs. Oh well, why don't we make that one next? Because you've you've been patient long enough with 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 my ramblings on Jack and George. Let's do Daddy Long Legs next. Yes. All right. Perfect. We'll we'll do it. Yes. All right. Perfect. No, okay. it, it's a plan. I I promise you this time. I guarantee it. I won't divert you with George Washington slept here. We'll 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 settle on Daddy <laughs> Long Legs. Um, yes. <laughs> But that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back end of the show. Coming up on the program, we will have the return of Laura Leibowitz, who will be coming on to talk about The Jazz Singer, uh, the, the big uh, hit film that introduced sound to the world on a mass scale. And the Marx Brothers train continues with Tyler Maybe talking about a night at the opera, a day at the races, and room service. But until all of that, until next time, folks, say goodnight, Hope. Goodnight, Hope. <laughs> This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.